Hey, everybody, this episode is brought to you by Educated Wander, and I wanted to let you know a little bit of an inside look as to how my personal experience was with Educated Wander. Last year, Lindsay and I went to the West Coast of the United States, to California, San Francisco specifically, and we checked out a lot of great stuff that Educated Wander set up for us, including things like Alcatraz. We went to Alcatraz. That was a great time. There's so much stuff going on there. They say it's a haunted prison. There's so much history there, and Educated Wander hooked us up with that. On top of that, we went to the Mirror Woods, which is kind of like the Redwood Forest. They have Redwoods in Mirror Woods, but it's not the Redwood Forest. But Mirror Woods was a great time. Beautiful scenery. It was absolutely fantastic. And who knows, maybe if you go there, you'll see a Bigfoot. You never know. So after that, we went to the Winchester Mansion, which is a very famous, world famous mansion that is known to be haunted. And we went on a tour in there. That was a great time. It was a little bit spooky at times when you're going through some of these places because it's so complex that you really don't know how to get out out of there. You just hope that you're following the right guide because if he gets lost, you're never getting out of there. But it was a really good time. I highly suggest checking that out. And then we also hit up Pier 39. And Pier 39 is really well known for the sea lions. The sea lions were out there sunbathing. It was just a really good, I mean, it's a tourist attraction, but it was really a good time. I highly encourage everybody to check out Educated Wander because our trip last year to San Francisco was awesome. And it had a lot to do with Educated Wander hooking us up with the things that we wanted to see while we were out there. So go to educatedwanderer.com and check them out. Contact them for your dream trip today. This was all circulating around the base that a giant had been killed, but no one was supposed to talk about it. I saw three long bony fingers reach up underneath the door, curl up to grab it, and then disappear. When he came over to me, dude, he slithered over to me. And this giant comes out of the cave and they're all frozen. And he starts running and firing at this giant. Well, the giant moves. He's got a spear in one hand and he's running really fast. And spears Dan and holds him up like this. Somebody yells, shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face. They basically decapitate him. Got closer, got closer, got closer. When he got about 15 yards away from me, I raised that 12 gauge and I blow his head off. I feel something pulling at my leg, and I look over, and there are two small gray entities pulling at me, and they're literally, I'm getting pulled off the bed. I reached my hand into this bush, and I touched air, couldn't breathe, and I couldn't move, because I know I'm seeing a monster. to the show, everybody. You're listening to The Confessionals. I am your host, Tony Merkel. Thank you for being here. If you've had an encounter or a story you'd like to share with me on the show, go ahead and shoot me an email. My email address is theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. That's theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the connection section and you can reach me that way as well. Either way works for me, just get a hold of me. 
Now let's get into the Art Bell iTunes five-star ratings and reviews. If you go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review, you get a shout-out on the following week's show. And this week's shout-outs is Yeti Eddie 5, Giorgio 83, Dude Where's My Soul, Big Bad Bat 86, Lady Timberwolf, Blaney Photo, Superfly Ken from New Mexico, Jay Costill 1986, Firm 5, Crazy Paula, Zone B Slayer from Canada, and JPD 6221 from Australia. Thank you very much for going to iTunes and leaving that five-star rating and review. It definitely helps the show be more visible on iTunes. Now, moving on to the Patreon shout-outs. If you become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the confessionals, you get a shout-out on the following week's show as well. And this week's shout-outs is Paula B., Noah S., Rob W., William H., George S., Eddie K., Tony A., Michael J., and Joseph J. Thank you very much for going to patreon.com forward slash the confessionals and helping to support the show on a monthly basis. There's a lot of great rewards, including being able to watch me do these interviews live in person. So it's a really fun time for everybody. I highly suggest you check it out. And also, I've been saying that once we hit 200 patrons, we're going to do a raffle. Well, guess what? This past week, we hit 200 patrons. So we're going to be doing a raffle in the coming weeks. It's going to be live on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You'll be able to tune in anywhere you're at and watch the raffle live if you're a patron. So look forward to that. Now, I want to let you guys know we have Tony Rodriguez coming on the show this week. And Tony Rodriguez has a phenomenal story of alien abduction that lasted over 20 years. It includes time travel, alien entities, government. It's really jam-packed with a lot of different stuff. So let's get to it. This is about a two-hour interview and it's filled with a lot of information. So let's get to it right now. Okay, tonight I have a great guest coming on, and this is somebody that I have reached out to a while ago, and I'm really excited about having him on the show. I have Tony Rodriguez. Tony, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm good. Uh, good to be here. Thanks from, for having me. From one Tony to another, right? So, <laughs> so listen, man, I, I came across your stuff on YouTube, and uh, it turns out it was one of the first interviews, or if it was the first interview you did, and uh, I, I was just fascinated by your story. And uh, I hadn't heard it before, so I'm really excited about bringing you on the show because I'm fairly certain that if most of my audience has heard your story by now, uh, they would have told me about you by now. So uh, I'm really excited about having you on. Um, so your story is one that has lots of twists and turns. It's a huge, long story. Um, we may not be able to get through the whole thing tonight, uh, which we can just bring you back for another show. But I would like for you to kind of start working from the beginning of uh, how you ex- went into experiencing this abduction and even before you get into the details of that how did you go about remembering these memories you had right um that's a that you know the memories is what everybody wants to know and uh, my, i think my um my personal experience was different than most most people that um clearly other people go through the same programs uh, maybe it's not widespread. It's everybody, but I think a lot of people, a lot of people go. You know, if you're familiar with the, what is called a twenty and back, where someone is taken and then we're, you know there there are human uh, government secret space programs that have access to ET technology that are taking people. They can employ them for twenty years. Some people more. Some people can go twice and do forty. Some more than that. I don't. It's all classified stuff. But basically. 
they're taking people for 20 years and then they have the ability to age regress them somehow and put them back that same night. And you lose people as soon as you mention the words time travel. You sell, you know, people are willing to entertain the thought of ETs or breakaway civilizations or UFOs, all that. People can, uh, your standard person in America can entertain that. But as soon as you say time travel, they're like, oh, whatever, hogwash. But <laughs> basically, that's what they're doing. And um, they're using, they're have, they have the help of ETs that are more advanced. And it's policed by advanced ETs time travel you think well if they could time travel it'd be the end of the world you know how could that be abused it could be abused greatly but it's also greatly policed um basically they have the ability to take somebody use them for 20 years and at the end of that time regress their body with a medical procedure back 20 years prior and then time travel them back and put them back minutes after they were taken so a lot of people are being taken and, ha and then uh erase their memory and then there's a blank slating involved so there's memory taken away. And like I said, a lot of people, a lot of people that I was with up there that were in my circumstance, which was slavery, a lot of people don't want to remember. The other person, that 20 year, that 20 year old person in that, you know, becomes basically a different identity. It's, you know, it's a person that has a different uh, life experiences to draw on, doesn't want to remember. A lot of people just at that point say, good, I'm going to forget this. This is great because it sucked. And I think in my circumstance, at that moment, those last days before I was going to get put back, I deeply wanted to not forget. Um, I deeply wanted to remember. Uh, it was a very, it was a very emotionally difficult existence. I was very lonely, and so um, I did find close friends, and I was in love with a girl at the end of it, and so I didn't want to forget her, and that motivated me. I, I didn't want to forget what happened. And so um, when I came back, I, I was taken. I mean, you know, without going into the actual details of everything, I'll just, I'm going to sure. try to go through a, a quick synapse. Basically, I uh, went to school with a kid who said his dad was an Illuminati. We didn't get along. And he pointed me out to his dad one day. And that later that day or the next day, I was, t I had a gray alien in my room and took me. And, um, I did what's called a 20 and back as a slave, and I was traded from private ownership for people on Earth. I did about six years on Earth as a slave. I went through the pedo stuff. I was a sex slave, and I went through trauma-based mind control under an MK Ultra program, that exactly like they describe it. Any information you find on it, I, you know, it was exactly like that. It was scaled down. You could tell they only put like a dozen kids through it, and it wasn't a very well-funded thing that you know and you could you could kind of tell they were cobbled together with what they could um but then i went to peru and then through seattle i went to places on earth and this is what was really hard for me to discover we talked about this but then i was eventually sold off into a secret space program i was sold off to a military program and ended up on mars um they did a stint at the moon as training as soldier uh support like a support role for soldiers and then went to mars which is actually um, thriving with life. There's a lot of life there. The program I was on there was canceled, and then I was taken and retrained at a city, a subterranean city on Mars, and put through a system, another system of not as traumatic mind control, but a mind control system that trained me to do ship repair, and I ended up being sold to what's called the Ceres Colony Corporation, which was a bunch of Germans um, after World War II that moved out into Ceres, uh, which is a small planetoid after Mars 
in right before right before the asteroid belt. Uh, a lot of people don't even know about it, but there's a series of underground uh, German cities built in. They fi- they found an existing base there, and they built into it. Uh, about a quarter million Germans live there, and among with two other ET races and visiting ET races. And I lived there for about 12 years, I think, uh, and worked on a ship that did trade missions throughout the galaxy and into other galaxies. And I was I eventually was promoted uh, to the point of cargo engineer, and I was in charge of one of the cargo bays, and I had some guys under me, and that's what I did. And I went back into my life. Um, I was taken in, uh, I believe, right around April of 82. I was in fourth grade. I would have been 10 years old and uh, went through the 20 and back. And then when I put back, I woke up the next day. I was not the same person. I was a completely changed person. I, I wasn't the same and, but I had no memory of why. And uh, throughout my life, through, during that time, I had symptoms of problems. I had problems from it. I, you know, symptoms of PTSD. I had other problems and uh, didn't understand why because I went through a pretty normal life, normal childhood, you know. And uh, I had flashes of memories. I had memories that didn't make sense, you know, through my teen years of working on a UFO. And it, it didn't make sense to me to have such vivid uh, memories. They were greater than dreams. And it didn't make sense because I told told myself, when could I have had the time to do that, to learn how to be a cargo engineer? When, you know, because I knew a trade. Not only was I, you know, remembering it, not, not like a dream, but inside the memories, I had a trade. I had a, a recall of how I got there. So it wasn't some dream. But I just brushed it off as a dream because of the time aspect of it. Because when could it? Because I have a chronological memory of my life. I, you know, sure. I grew up here in Michigan. And um, it was in... Uh, April of 2015, I started getting headaches, you know, just whatever, for whatever reason. And I went and got an MRI scan at the hospital. And I went to the doctor, and then they had an MRI scan. And uh, about two weeks after that, I had huge chunks of memories. All it, Basically, all those, all those fragmented memories assembled and made a story, made a coherent timeline. And I thought, oh, my God, that happened. The, wow. the same wow. time, the same time I had discovered the other uh, Randy Kramer's uh, testimony, who explained about the twenty and back, you know, in one of his early videos, he explained how the twenty and back work, and I went, it just, I, I went, oh my god, that happened, and then, and then, once I was able to accept what I had, I went, oh, more memories came, and they were, and it went on for a few months, you know, just big chunks, big chunks of memories, of things that I really. Uh, a lot of it's not enjoyable to remember. You, you know, I mean, to be honest, uh, the traumatic stuff came first. Uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the emotional memories, things that were, the things that had an emotion involved, you know, uh, being hurt or having sex or having my feelings hurt or seeing something bad happen, combat. Those memories came back quick, you know, fast. And then, so I, I'm still, I still remember, I still remember new things, small things now, you know, small details. Yeah. Um, but that's yeah. what happened. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that was a great um, summary of what you experienced. Uh, like I said, I know your story is incredibly long and you like you're constantly having new memories. Uh, but let's just start from the beginning, uh, how this all started and just walk us into this whole thing, man. You bet. Um, well, in um, fourth grade, I was picked for a uh, uh, advanced learning class at, in my school talented and gifted the tag program 
and we met on Wednesdays, at, you know, in the cap- in the library of the school for a couple hours, an hour and a half or so. I forget. But um, in that class, there was a boy. You know, I at that point in my life, I was something I could be proud of as being a smart kid. The classified for that, you know, it, it gave me some, yeah, you know, something to be proud of. So there was a kid in that class that was came to school in a limousine and uh, was pretty cocky, and he was extremely smart. And I was threatened by him. And um, one day I went into the library and uh, we were early. I was early to class and it was him and uh, maybe three or four other girls sitting on the couch in the library. And they were all laughing. I walked up and they were like, uh, one of the girls said, he can read your mind. Do him, do him. And he didn't want to. He just looked at me and and I thought, you can't do that. And I thought to myself, that's not possible, you know. And uh, she said, no, do him, do him. He said, go ahead and think something, but don't say it. And I looked at him and I thought to myself, you're the ugliest kid I've ever seen. And none of these girls would ever date you. That's what I thought to him. I mean, these were 10, we were 10 year old kids. And uh, he looked at me like he knew, I didn't, I didn't believe he was gonna know. But ever after that, at that moment, he looked at me with just disgust in his face. He didn't say anything. And he never liked me after that. We were just, it was just, I couldn't get a hello. He hated my guts. And, um, Later on that year, during the Scott, the science fair, his dad came on and was his dad came, and was a judge for the science fair, and you know, and um, he said, in one day, he said, my dad's an Illuminati. What's your dad do? And I had no idea what that was. And I, you know, my, I said, my dad works at GM. My dad's got a great job. My dad's super, super awesome. You know, which my dad did have a great job, but. Um, I didn't know what that meant, but it stuck out in my head, you know, as something. And he was he he meant it in an, like in an insulting way. Um, but when his dad came up later, he pointed. I walked by. We're setting up our exhibits in the cafeteria for our for the science fair, and I walked by him and his father, and he said, "Dad, that's that boy I told you about that ruined my confidence." And then they had a they had an exchange of words that I didn't understand what they were talking about. That didn't make any sense to me. And then I heard him say, "Well, he doesn't really deserve that." And then his dad said, well, you just have to learn how to handle, you know, he said something to the effect of you need to learn how to manage your resources. There's, you know, and I just walked off. I didn't think of it. And um, it was later that night or it was within a day or two. It was very soon that I woke up in the middle of the night with a gray, with a, with your standard gray ET standing over my bed with his face, maybe a few inches from mine. And, um, I originally thought it was my dad joking around. I said, dad, knock it off, take off the mask. And I reached up and touched it and, you know, like on his, like right on his cheek. And it was cold and wet and porous. It was like, like it was porous. Like there were like a, like a window screen kind of porous, you know? And, um, I went, ah, eek, you know, I, I, I freaked out. And before I could scream, I was frozen and I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. Like, and I saw at the foot of my bed two shorter reptilian-looking beings with hoods on, with with kind of a like a hook hoods, and they came around and grabbed me and took carried me back to the foot of my bed. And there was a flash. I thought it felt like we went out the window, but it, I don't think so. Looking back on it, there was a flash of light, and I ended up in a laboratory somewhere in a round grate, and it looked like an underground room that was rounded, and it had uh, machinery like stainless steel machinery in it. And um, they did some medical tests on me, and they told me they um, 
told me they wanted to use me for 20 years. They said they his exact words, and uh, this was the reptile talking, you know, telepathically. It was in my head that we were speaking. And uh, he said, we want to borrow your consciousness. That, those were his exact words of the term. And he said, I was lucky that I was going to get an extra 20 years of life, that it was actually something to be, that I'd be thankful for. And I thought as a kid, I thought this was first contact with aliens for, I thought they had just landed and here we go. I said, I knew you guys were real. I'm so happy. I was, I was just ecstatic. I, I was high-fiving, you know what I mean? It was my mood. I was just thrilled. And so I said, 20 years, I can't go for 20 years. I got to be back to my mom and dad. There's no way my mom and dad would, you know, I can't grow up without my family. I can't do that. And he said, you're going to go right back. It'll be back tomorrow. It'll be like you never left. So people do it all the time. Trust me. He's like, people do it all the time. It'll be like you never left. We're just going to borrow your consciousness and put you right back. It'll be like you're, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and tell your mom and dad everything. And so I agreed. And they did a procedure. They stuck a, a blanket over, like a, a a latex, like a sheet over me, and it sucked to the bed tight. And then they cut around one eye, and they cut my mouth open so I could breathe. And they stuck a needle in, and... Um, it felt like I was seeing stars, like, you know, like, you know, the punch. If you get punched in the eye when you can see stars, it was that. It was like being punched in the eye. I woke up, uh, who knows when later, but I woke up at a hospital, like in a hospital, with a human doctor and a human nurse giving me a checkup. And I was in, I, be I believe I was in Inyo Kern Air Base in one of the buildings there um, in Southern California. And that's where I went through a trauma-based mind control program, like an MK Ultra program. Me and myself, and there were probably a dozen other kids there. How long did that MK Ultra program last for you? Was that like a, a period of time, or was it like the whole twenty years that you were involved in it? No, no, that it was a it was like a training time, and it's really hard for me to nail down a full time frame of it because at some point they sleep deprived us. You know, in the beginning, there were they would do things in the morning that caused you pain, and then you would get drug. We would get drugged, and then have to look at these movies of you know, weird movies of like Hollywood stuff and Disney, and then animals being murdered, and then Hollywood and Disney, and then they all had subliminal stuff. And I mean, it was bad. And crime scenes, the the movies of of crimes, like it it was it was really twisted. But the movie would play over and over again all day long, and they gave us you know like a like acid, like a hallucinogen. And then the next morning they would do something like they would once they dislocated my shoulder, he put a contraption on and turned my shoulder dislocated and I was in great pain. And then I had to sit through the movies like that. And then, you know, it was strange. But at some point they um, started with sleep deprivation where every night a loud uh, buzzer would go off all night long and we'd had to stand up. We had to stand up and sometimes they would come by and just slap you and you could go back to sleep or Sometimes they would come by and shock us with a hand, like a hand taser thing, a cattle prop, whatever it was. And then you could go back to sleep. But then 10 minutes later, it would have, they'd do it again. And that went on all night. And once that happened, once the sleep de deprivation happened, I lost all uh, sense of, of time, of how long I was there or what. You know, once, once you reach that point where you haven't slept, it was I, – I, I totally lost, lost any kind of uh, – I guess coherence of time. So I don't know. My yeah. my my instinct is that it went on for three to six months. 
the total, you know, that that was, um, at the end of it, we were trained that if we got electrical shocked, that we would just go into like a state of mind where we didn't move. We didn't do anything totally comatose. And you would accept, you would wait for command. Like they could shock you and then you would just stop what you're doing and wait for it to be told something to do and you would do it. So, and that's, that's kind of what, um, what they trained us to do. That was what most, that was the bulk of it. The rest of it was we went through a short uh, remote viewing and uh, they were giving us some other drugs and um, they were putting us out like close to death. Like they were drugging us to where we would lose consciousness. But I guess um, there was a point where we were either channeling or we became psychic or something like I would lose consciousness. And when I would wake up, people were amazed with things that I said. So they were getting information somehow. They were they were had created a psychic. Um so some way to access either future or past events. And um, what they ended up doing was selling me off to um, a town in Peru, in the river town in Peru called Porto. I, went, I ended up going to Porto Tawantinsuyo, Peru. And what happened was they were shipping um, airplane loads of cocaine to Colombia from there uh, once a month or so. And I guess one of the planes went down in weather. And um, so they put me on there. And I would, they would, we would get up in the air and fly for an hour or so. And I would, I had a handler, a guy that spoke English that lived there and he would put an IV in my arm and drug me and I'd go out. And when I woke up, he would tell me that I said the most, that I talked in Spanish and that he talked to dead relatives, his dead grandma, he was to, would speak to him through me and other people would speak to him through me. And I, he, I would warn them of bad weather or like I even navigated the plane sometimes, you know, while I was under there. So that's what they were using. And if you think about the war on drugs and the CIA uh, are behind it, if that's the case, which they are my experiences, that was if they had access to this technology, you can think how easy it would be to be successful at smuggling anything, let alone investing yeah. or running, running a company or doing anything on a high level. If you have access to psychics that you could turn on and off with a drug, um, that's obviously a very powerful thing. Yeah, I can understand that. Uh, so when you were in Peru and stuff, you were essentially a slave that had to do what they told you to do. Yes, but you know what? There was, after the program in the beginning, so the, the mind-breaking of it all was very traumatic. And as a kid, you know, when I was in Peru, I wasn't really stable in the head. I wasn't. I was kind of a crazy kid. You know, I was nuts. And I would cry for no reason. I, I wouldn't speak to people. I would just kind of daze off. And I wasn't right in the head. And it took years during during the 20 and back. It took years to heal from that. I did eventually kind of heal. But it wasn't until later and later in my late teens before I kind of got back to um, my own personality. Before I got before I grew my personality back, before I got back to myself, if ever. But in those first few years, I was just not right in the head. I was a basket case kid during that time. So slave, yes, but not really. Uh, more, more. Most of the month, I, ha I had a low. I had a uh, house with a bathroom, with a like an outhouse, and I had a TV with a few a black and white TV that I could watch. And most of the time, I just sat there and did nothing. You know, there wasn't much to watch on TV down there, but. Most of the time, I just sat there and did nothing, and then somebody would bring me. The first, at first, they kept me locked in there, but after a while, they trusted me. You know, they would leave me out, and uh, when they saw I wasn't going to go anywhere, 
they really like he's not gonna they figured it out that I wasn't trying to escape or something that I was you know not right in the head anyway and they would bring me food and um, that was my life you know wow. sometimes my handler guy would come and get me take me fishing I would spend time with him you know to get me out but uh, and once a month or so once a month they would have enough boats were coming down the rivers and dropped from places that they made the cocaine and they would store it there and then when they had enough for a plane load they would load up and then I would go and uh, we would fly to Santa Marta, Colombia and drop it off there where it would find its way to its next stop and uh, I was there for a couple years two years two, two rainy seasons I remember so two years right around puberty so right around 13, I started losing the ability. Every time I they put me under, I would get sick, and I would stay sicker and sicker until it was like almost until the next time before I recovered from the last time. And it was right around puberty. And then I started was the things I said was in, incoherent. Like I was, you know, it it didn't work the same. At some point, it, it quit working, and so I ended up going back to my original owner, which was a satanic worshiping billionaire in Seattle. And uh, I went there first, right after, right after, in, right after California. I went to their house and was privy to sit in on a ritual human sacrifice, and another, and a few other uh, satanic rituals that they, myself and two other kids that he owned. And then we were sent to Peru. And then I was sent to Peru. And the other kids, I don't know where they went, but I was there for a few weeks and witnessed that stuff. Then and then went to Peru. And when I lost the ability in Peru, I was sent back to him, to that house in Seattle. And from at that point, the house had been remodeled. The downstairs had bedrooms, and there were other boys there. And we were sex slaves at that point. So this whole time that you're experiencing this stuff, uh, essentially you you've been abducted, kidnapped, and you're being transported all over the world for whatever purposes they, they, they have for you. And in that timeline, there's essentially a missing child that, that his parents are scared to death that he was never around. And then in the grand scheme of things, you wake up the next day and it's like never happened because of the time travel ability, right? Yeah. You know, there's a lot we don't know. Um, these are people that have access to time, time manipulation technology. So, Yes and no. Do I, I don't think so. I don't think my really? parents are. I was gone. You know, I get what you're saying. There could have been a timeline and then it disappeared. Yeah. But not really. Um, you know, I don't know. I get asked that question a lot. You know. Also, it's important. It's important to to state that when I woke up in California in that airbase with that doctor, I had no memory of my parents. I had no memory of mom and dad or my sister or brothers. None of that. I had no memory of my, no childhood memory. I was blank slated. You know, through the yeah. 20 years, I, I didn't know where I came from. I, he, I used to give me crayons. And so in Peru, they used to give me crayons and paper to draw on. And I always drew, I always do the same thing. I remember what, I always drew a house with a long driveway, with a super long driveway. Like I would draw on the paper, I draw a little farmhouse and then I drew the driveway. And my real house had a quarter mile long driveway. It was a farmhouse. The, the house wow. that I was taken from. So I was on some level, I subconsciously remembered it. I always drew the same thing over and over and over and over again, but I had no memory of what it was. I had no memory of what I was drawing during that, during those years. 
I mean, that was years that I, that was my doodle, you know, Jeez. But it was my house I was taken from and I, and I had no memory of it. So my theory is this, and this is a little bit off, off of the chronological thing. My theory about how the technology worked is this. I believe that they took me, I believe that there's more than one way for them to do this, to do a 20 and back. I think there's, you know, there, there's more than one way to make an atomic bomb. You know, there's different ways to do this. And they ultimately, they have the same result. I think that I was taken and cloned. And I think that the spark of life that's in you, I think that when you clone somebody, you know how they ever have the sheep and it just dies a few weeks later. They're, right now right. we're learning about that. And then they made it illegal, really. But I think that you need spark of life from some somebody to drive something as complex as a human when you clone it. So I think that they cloned me and the clone was a vegetable. And then they took my whatever essence out. They have the technology to do that. Your your essence, your spark of life out and put it into the clone. And then it went on about its way. So really I'm still there but alive but a vegetable laying on that table. Then they, the clone does 20 years. They put it back in time and they can just kill the thing and bring your spark of life back into you and then set you on your way because – the reason, the reason that the thing that reaffirms that theory to me is that when I woke up again, when it was all over, I had all my memories back. I had no memories of the twenty and back. I had no memories of Ceres Colony or Peru. I had my memories of mom and dad all of a sudden. So how did they do that? Because it was localized in that body. So when I woke up in the clone body, I had no memories of. of I didn't have these that set of memories. I had. I went and made new memories. Then when they took, got rid of that, put me back in this body, I lost those memories and regained my original memories of mom and dad and, you know, the dog and things. Yeah. So that's why I have that theory. It's not like I was actually awake witnessing it. You know, when you're under surgery, you don't know what's happening to you. But that's what I think happened. I think that it's a variation on that kind of technology is what enabled them to do that. And as I learned later on in my service on the ship doing cargo, cargo transport, Time travel was very easy for them. We traveled time pretty much every day. The ship would leave at 8 in the morning. We'd go out and work 8 to 10 hours in space, and we would get back at 8.05. You know, and when they traveled at great distances, they were also traveling time. When they, and the ship went from inside the star system, A to B, pretty quickly. But when it went to another star system, it made a portal. It generated its own portal and jumped to another star system. So that is the... That is the method of travel they had. So, And then there are natural portals in space that they used to go to other galaxies and then jump within those galaxies to around to where they were going. So we've been lied to. We've been lied to uh, many ways by Hollywood. Number one, that if you can travel faster in light, that it still takes you a long time to get to the other end of the galaxy. That's not the case. Also, that if we go to another galaxy, it takes you a long time to get to that galaxy. In fact, that is also not the case. My experience that I remember was that we could leave in the morning, go several stops in our galaxy, go to another galaxy, make a stop or two, and come back for dinner in one day. And it was routine. That was the routine. We went out every day. There were hundreds of ships that did it. And um, it's a big place that the universe was – the universe isn't just uh, populated by a few um, – civilizations that are more advanced than ours nearby you know everybody's kind of hung up on on one the anunnaki or whatever that's not the case the fact is that there are billions and billions of technically advanced intelligent species 
and you we haven't even scratched the surface of them. Not because we haven't been able to, but because of the vastness of it. You know, like I, I I don't know. It's like books in a library kind of thing. You'll never read them all, and that's kind of what the experience was out there in space. It's not as or um, number one, it's not as far away as you think, and number two, it's not as organized as you think. Um, you can go and you can still go and discover ET races that no one else has had uh, contact with. And they come here. There's, they come here from all over, even though there are treaties to prevent it. That's why the ET field is so um, confusing. That's why when somebody has a when somebody has an ET experience and they describe it, it doesn't match up with other ET experiences. It's right. fragmented. It's very confusing because it's not the same ETs. It's not just one group or two groups. It's not just 100 groups of ETs that are fiddling with us down here. They've come from anywhere. It could be anybody from anywhere. And once they have a certain level of technology, there's really hard to catch them or stop them from doing it. You know, And there are many advanced uh, races above us, way above us of intelligence, way above us. That uh, And that's the other thing we've been lied to about, that we're the top of the food chain, and we're, we're not. Yeah, now – when you're describing all this stuff and we're talking about, you know, ETs from other galaxies or whatever, uh, I'm assuming then that here on earth, this is a global thing amongst governments, not just the United States, right? Is that how, yeah. how you kind of view things too? Or it's just like, this is a global thing. It's maybe, maybe it's an under underground thing where like, you know, governments, you know, maybe not, I don't know how to even describe it, but like some kind of like underground society in between governments that kind of, you know, run this sideshow. Uh, my understanding was that it was the, the nearby, the reptiles um, is an empire and uh, they have jurisdiction basically over our solar system. And uh, the Germans after world war two made a treaty with them and were, and they were able to colonize the place on the moon and then other places in the solar system, the Germans moved out to. So they may have lost the war or the property, you know, Europe, but they acquired the solar system. And so they are, were working directly under the rep, the reptiles, the Draco uh, empire that was here for a very long time already. And they're advanced in, in their own right. But, um, you know, when you look at it like countries, you know, it's like they worked, they aligned with one country and they were given the ability to leave. Um, forget where I was going with that, but the, they were, um, the Germans made it out. And the Germans came back and infiltrated and took over basically the monetary system, which was already ran by the Dracos, I believe. It's probably what the satanic stuff is. I think it's a, it's a uh, reptilian religion because the reptiles... Oh, really? Yeah, because the reptiles eat people. And I think that a lot of people, and I think that's how a lot of the infiltration, okay, remember, we're talking about technology to take somebody out of their body and put them in a new body. Sure. So if you could take a reptile and put him in a human body, he would still be hungry for people. And that's where you're getting the pedovore stuff and all that. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think that's really what's what's going on is all the organizations, if you look around you, the, the Moose Club, the Masonic club club the on and on the biker gangs everything um power is centralized the government all the governments the army the navy it all reports to one office 
you really only have to take over a handful of people to run the whole thing. It doesn't matter what club it is, you know, the army, for instance. So really all they have to do is take the few, the brass, remove them from their bodies and put a reptile in their body, a consciousness in their body. And then they can go down and do whatever they want until they're finished with their job. And then they can put everything back how they found it and move on. So that's, I think that's what's behind the whole satanic religion, the whole, the whole sacrificial thing. Uh, I think there are other, there's a lot of other factors, you know, spiritual factors, but I think that's, I think it's a technology more than a religion. And I think it's a, I think it's a mechanism that the reptiles use to control, um, dealings on the earth between us. I think that's how they've maintained control for thousands of years that way, but they, they take our leaders and either convert them or switch them out to a new consciousness that agrees with them, that will do what they say. And the, you know, uh, the test is to sacrifice humans, you know, that, that's the, that's their benchmark. So I think that's what's gone on. And that was, is a, not just a, a global thing. You said global, you know, is this a global it's not. It's a solar system thing. Okay. You know, like there are many, there are many different species living in our solar system right now, and some of them have control over parts of the Earth. I think that I found that um, I've been contacted by a lot of people after I, my stories came out. And I found that people from certain regions tend to have different forms of contact. A lot of people from Australia, they see they. I, there are there are plenty of people that have like. I think a lot of the military stuff happens in the United States and Canada. I think there's a lot in Europe, a lot of military uh, people that are being taken, abducted. I think there's a lot of other species that are abducting people from down in Australia and places in Europe. Um, I think there are just different different systems at work. It's not just one. I think everybody wants to lump it all into a good or bad ET or one this ET or that. I think the scope of it is much bigger. I think there are, you know, you're, you're talking about thousands of different programs, and we are just a um, a garden, or a we're a we're a store that they can pop in and grab people, you know, they can grab genetics from or people or consciousness, whatever that they need, because at a certain level, um, it just makes sense. People are just far more energy efficient than building a robot to go dig your tunnel or to do whatever to do this or that to go build your thing or to keep your machine running. It's just cheaper to feed a human than it is to build a machine to do it, energy-wise. Yeah. Well, you you mentioned several times about the whole satanic aspect of things, uh, and you mentioned that you I think it was in Seattle you stayed with a guy who was your owner who was satanic. So I mean, one thing I would say is I guess uh, according to your thoughts and, and opinions on the on the matter, uh, he was probably some type of reptilian. Uh, but also, what kind of things like happened there? I mean, I'm assuming you saw some crazy stuff having to stay with this guy. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I the first thing I witnessed was a sacrifice of a kid, you know, of a young kid, and uh, he made us eat some of them, and it was a it was like a communion. It was like a church communion, and uh, he said. Pulled pulled us in there, and we had an IV in, you know. And uh, he said, uh, "You can have some of this." He said, 
said, you can eat. You, I said, you know, what do, what do you need me to do? And he said, you drink this, which was blood from the kid, and you have to have a bite of it. Of it. And he cooked. He had a little burner there. He cooked him. And uh, I didn't want to, of course. And he said, you can. He's like, I'll, I'll give you a choice. I'll be fair with you and give you a choice. You can either participate in what we have done already, or you can be right up there next to him. I'll put you right up there and kill you too. It'll be fine with me. So you can have the choice. And I still, again, I was like terrified. I mean, I was faced with death. I was a kid. And right. I wanted to just have the ability to just reach up and punch him in his face. You know, I, I just, I was a kid. I was a kid that just went through a mind breaking, you know, uh, industrial grade mind control. And um, it was hard. It was a hard moment for me. The girl that was there, there were two other kids. There was a boy and a girl. And the girl that was there said, just do it. It doesn't mean anything anyway. She said, I did it. Nothing happened. Just do it. She interrupted the silence, you know, because I was teetering on the thought of telling them, you know, screw you, kill me then. You know, I was teetering on that. And um, so I did. And uh, then he did some, you know, it went back to his ritual. He did some mumbo jumbo and. They said something, and um, that was it. Then they, then they put us under. He gave us that drug. And all three of us kids, they put us on tables, and then they drugged us and put us under. And uh, I lost consciousness. I woke up the next morning feeling kind of sick, all three of us, and we were able to play. I think we had shoots and ladders was the game. We, we had a living room the next morning, and he acted like, he was on top of the world. He had the best, like he was in the best mood ever the next day, that guy. Did you ever, were you ever told what the meaning or purposes were behind those kind of things? No, not at all. Um, you, you know, it, looking back on it, you know, after we experienced things and you, you know, there's many things that I still, from the whole experience that I put, I'm still putting together. And, um, Looking back on it, it's shocking how much they didn't tell me. A lot of times I had surgeries or whatever I was going to do. It was there was very little instruction that they gave me as a as a servant or a slave, you know, as a resource. I was basically treated like a piece of equipment the whole time. You know, I was taken, I was fed and taken care of, but I was never really educated into as to what I was doing. Yeah, and and I can imagine if they're looking at you like a piece of property, they don't own an explanation to you. You know what I mean? Uh, you just do what you're told or they get rid of you. Uh, that's, I've had, I've had other shows where we've talked about, um, the satanic side of things. I, I had a, I had a guy who was, uh, deeply involved in Satanism and he, uh, he described very similar things as you, you know, aborting fetuses and then eating the fetuses and things like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, and that's one thing is I don't get a clear picture on. That's why I asked you is, uh, what's the point and purpose? I, I just, I don't get it. And I, I probably never will because I'm not a psychopath. So I, I haven't been able to speak about this. Most, most interviews go pretty quick, but, um, I don't know, maybe a week later, a few days later, uh, you know, like I said, the time frame was sketchy, but it was it was a short time after the sacrifice. Uh, later, same kids, myself, the girl, and the boy. 
this time they had people come over and we uh, were taken upstairs. He had a fireplace upstairs in the house. And I have never told anybody about this, but I, I mean, I, I've mentioned to some people, but not, I'm not interviewed about this ever. They, I don't know, six, six or seven of them, nine of them, maybe nine people. They had all, they wore all white, white robes and, um, they had the old school, like the, you know, the incense burner on the chain, like yeah. the Catholic church has full of incense. They had that and they had a fire and they took us up and they put like a wax on our face and they had mirrors there and they covered like our face with a wax and they put us in the fire. They put our face right up to the fire where I remember inhaling my nose hairs burning and inhaling flames and they pulled you back and they gave us a, like a flower. It was a drug. It was a flower and, um, or some, you know, it was, it was like a flower. They made us eat it. And I, you know, I, it was a it was a hallucinogen. So I was paranoid, you know, it made you, it made me really paranoid feeling. Then they showed me, uh, my melted, the wax that melted in the mirror and said, look, you know, it, and it was, he said, he asked me my name, which they had given me a name at that point. And I don't remember it, but he asked me my name. He said, uh, I have a new name for you. Do you want it? And I just shook my head. No, you know, I didn't. And he held me to the fire. And he said, look, this is you. You're, you're, you're dying. He's like, every time you can't withstand, you're not strong enough to withstand the fire. Do you want your new name? And I said, no, and he put me in again. And the wax was like melted. It was like really gross, you know? And I started to really like, just like trip out, like freak out. And finally I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he gave me a name. I forget what it was. It was only used at that time. And he put a mask on, like it was a porcelain mask, and it stuck to the melted wax. And then he held me in the fire, and he showed me the mirror again. He said, see, now you're strong enough. And that was that was a ritual they did. But then, while we were still, then they cleaned us up. They took all that, they took it off, and they cleaned us up. And they put us together, and they all stood around us. And uh, they did the incense, a couple of incense. And I swear to God that... In the cloud above us, they started chanting. They did some kind of ritual. They started chanting. I swear, in the cloud above us, we could see somebody coming down, like a being. And like we call him the Glass Man. He looked like he was made out of glass. Like a, he was made out of green glass. He looked like a man. And he came down. And this is like a hallucination, you know, like a like a group hallucination because the other kids saw him too. And the boy like said he was ready got mad he said just hold my hands and and he got mad at him and looked up at him and the the man that i could see in the cloud of incense above us got scared of the boy and left and they were really? disappointed that he didn't talk through us he was they were they were like is he going to say anything like it was a dud like their their ritual failed at that point and they asked us did you see and he kept asking did you see somebody and we were like yeah we saw somebody and he was like, he didn't say anything to you, and I was like, no. And he was like, well, he must, must he'll he'll get it next time, kind of thing. Like they were, he wanted that being to come into one of us and speak. And they were, he was trying to get information. So it was a, they were literally summoning something. They were trying to get one of you guys possessed for their own purposes. Yeah, yeah, and that whatever drug they gave us, I could we, you know, I, we were, I was hallucinating. I, we could see a person. We could see a being. And it was in the cloud, like they made a big cloud of incense above us that it came, that he was there. So was it a hallucination though? I mean, if two, if 
uh, three people see all the same thing. I mean, is is that a hallucination? Yeah, well, we were kids. It's not admissible in court. But <laughs> I'm joking. But what I'm saying is it's not a religion. It's a technology. You know, it's not a religion. It's a, They're not using it to worship. They're not using it. They Everybody's... The big, the big excuse for Satanism is that to make yourself a better person, make yourself better. That's bull, too. They're not doing that. The people at the higher echelon, these people that were practicing the real deal, it was a technology for them to get ahead. It's a loophole in the way that the, that the universe works. That there are beings, when you die, you actually do go somewhere, and you have access to future and past information. And if you can contact somebody that's dead, you can access future and past information. It's just another version of time travel, just a, a poor man's time traveler is what that is. And they're, they're using a technology to access information from the future so that they can manipulate it for their own gains. It's a technology, period. And what they did was everybody had the technology back in the day when the whole world practiced ritual human sacrifice. Then Jesus came along. And what did he do? Eat of my body, drink of my blood, do have bread and wine instead of killing people. And it stamped it out and it erased the technology. And they kept it for themselves and they're running, running things with it. It's a tech, it's a technology. The religion is a technology and they invented a religion on top of it to hide it because everybody had the tech back in the day. Everybody back in the 2000 years ago, the Hawaiians did ritual sacrifice the American Indians did ritual sacrifice. There are mass graves they found in Missouri. The uh, Irish did it all through the Levant, through the Middle East. The, the Egyptians did it. The Chinese did it. Everybody worldwide practiced ritual human sacrifice at one point. Ritual, right. not, just, not just eating people because they were hungry, but ritualized in the same way that I witnessed in 82 in Seattle. And these were people that were, like I said, he was a billionaire, a self-made billionaire that was in a great deal of power. And you got you to think if you can access that kind if you have access to that technology and you can have a being come and tell you what, when to, to turn left instead of turning right, you can get you could, you'd be a billionaire pretty quick, too. The whole thing just seems disgusting and evil. The, if what you're saying is is correct, I mean, the, the route to get to that technology is just so sinister and, and evil. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, it's amoral at best. Um, you know, a lot of like to a, to a reptile, I mean, look at what we do to animals that are not our same species. Look at how it's, it, people aren't very evil to treat another species very badly right now, us, me and you people, people in my neighborhood within a few miles of me can do some pretty terrible things to animals because they're a different species because they see them as a lower species. Right. When really we're all made of the same exact stuff. Um, but these are another species of people that are here to run things from another planet. These are other that are just, you know, they say it's shape shifting, but I think that they're using consciousness. I think that the consciousness transference is a viable technology that they can take your consciousness out of you and put it into somebody else and switch vice versa. The Freaky Friday where the mom and daughter switch places. I, I yeah. think that that's technologically achievable. And I think that's how they do it. That whenever they need to infiltrate somewhere, they could take the president of the United States or Congress. They could take them all at once, you know, in one night, sneak in, switch their consciousness out. They could all go vote something stupid the next day, and they put everybody back the day after that. 
you could run a whole world like that pretty easy. And if it's a run-of-the-mill technology, they've got it down to an absolute science. Um, it's easy to see how, you know, how far that could go, from how far down the rabbit hole that could really go. And people, when we're being kept oblivious to it. Any kind of technology, any kind of science that goes near it is made to be laughable or um, just tucked under the rug, you know. Um, if you have that kind of power where you're printing money, you can you could hide any kind of technology you wanted from public. You could you could erase any kind of discovery very easily once you have control of the military and the CIA and all the money, which they do. Yeah, absolutely. So you had these experiences with uh, Peru, Seattle. At what point did you actually go off Earth? And was when you remembered the. <laughs> When you remembered that, was it hard for you to even believe the memories that you had? Still is. It still is hard. Sure. I, you know, I go nowadays, but I'm into my normal life. I, you know, I'm a dad and I have a life. I have a, I work a job and, I, you know, I'm a normal person. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't do this professionally. So there are times I go in my normal life for weeks at a time without thinking about any of it. And then when I do, it comes up, I, you know, I go look on my calendar, I have an interview and I go, wow, that happened, you know, and I still have to go back and remind myself about it all. Like, it still is hard to, when, you know, cause I forget about it and get back to my life. And then sure. when I go back, when I start thinking about it again, it's just as, it's just as shocking each time to remember, to recall it all. Um, <clears throat> so what happened was when I went back, um, I lived basically for another two years in Seattle, so probably from 13 until right around 16 years old. And um, there was his wife that was there. He was never there. And it, we were boys for sex parties. We were raped. And um, they were doing fundraisers and parties. Just it was a whole it was a whole underground man. Like it was well organized. And um, it wasn't like every night or something like that. It was only during the summer, and they would have a party. They had a calendar, so there was only a few times a year that it really had. The rest of the time, it was like living in an orphanage, and they're downstairs. And um, anyhow, what happened was we had to do calisthenics every morning, and we were on a very strict diet. Like they kept us skinny, and uh, we took a little cup of pills every morning. Like, I don't know if they were vitamins or steroids. I don't, honestly, I don't know what it was. And we took it every day, and then we did about a half hour workout routine in the morning. Then we had a swimming pool. <clears throat> we could just hang out in the pool, and then we had a little board games and a television with a v VHS. <clears throat> and we had our whole day. That's it. That was my whole life. And um, they would throw big parties, and we would be chained up and taken out, and we were a booth at a party. And they had girls, too, that apparently lived in another house nearby, but they had girls that would be on a, uh, the other end of the party. And uh, that would happen. So <clears throat> at some point, they changed the pills. There was a different, there was a different drug they went in, there, went in there, and I became allergic to it. The first day, I got sick to my stomach, you know, just nauseous. The second day, I, got, I felt really bad. I couldn't do the workout, and I said, whoa, this is me, making me sick. The third day, as soon as I took the pills, I vomited. You know, I threw them right back up. And uh, I said, can't we just change back to the old ones? And she called and inquired about it. And they said, nope, if you don't, then you got to go to the military. 
which was always the threat. Like uh, when we lived there, you know, if you don't behave, you're going to be sold to the military. Well, you'll probably be in combat and get hurt or die. So you don't want to go to the military. So if you, you know, you've got it really cushy here, you should behave. Don't try to escape or do anything. This was in Seattle on one of the islands near Seattle. Um, so she drove me, we took the ferry and she drove me to the back of a store somewhere and two guys in a van were there and they grabbed me, put me in the back of the van and just gave me a shot, some shot in my arm and I passed out and I woke up on the moon somewhere. Um, I had a room that they would just like a blanket on the floor in the room and they would hose me down and it was another bout of the, uh, they would give me eye drops that were as a drug and they were grays. They would, they would come and get, it was a gray that would come and get me and walk me to where I was going and they'd plug me into a machine and I watched movies again. It was the same kind of, it was the same kind of training. Like it was movies and, uh, with drugs. And then, you know, they held my head in place. And it was fight or flight response. It wasn't really like military training. Like I never had a gun. Like this is how you strip your gun and how you fix your gun. And none of that. It was fight or flight. Like don't run. Never, never run from your fight. Just fight to the death. It was like suicide bomber training. Worth of, uh, you know, uh, subliminal programming. Programming. And that was like, we. it was like weeks of it. And, um. I was being trained to be a support soldier, to be a, to be bait for a real soldier. You know, like I was a support soldier that a soldier on the field could tell to go do something and go and attack that and draw them out, the bad guys, and then we'll shoot them. That was kind of like, wow. that was kind of the job that I was being trained for. Um, they loaded us up. There was, there was about a dozen of us at that point. I want to say a dozen There could, could have been more, um, Guys like me, we were all about the same age, or you know, late teens. And then they load us up on a small transport, and we went to another base on the backside of the moon. And we walked through a bunch of hallways and took an elevator down, and then we walked up to a door. And they were military guys. They were guys in uniform, military. And um, they handed us each a little canister. And... Uh, he said, don't press the button. He said, if you press the button on the canister, it will immediately explode and you'll be killed and whatever's near you will be killed. And it won't be armed until you walk through that door. So he said, it's not armed. But once you walk through that door, once you press that button, that's what will happen. And we stood there and waited, I mean, like a long time, like a half hour. We just stood there. The door opened. We went in. It was a big, like a basketball court size of a room, like a basketball court arena. And sure. There were people, there was a crowd, but you couldn't see them. They were up on a, like a balcony that was with lights shining down. So when you looked up, you couldn't see up there. <clears throat> and on the other end of the arena, a giant door opened and a gigantic 400-pound spider came in. Um, it was a bug. And it, it came in and it was scared, telling, you know, and it moved. And it made a little bit of noise. And when it moved, it was really silent. There was a... Uh, few inches of sand on the floor. The floor had sand. And uh, we all got scared and huddled together. We were just scared shitless. And it came up to us. And as it got closer, you know, I remember thinking we were pushing each other to the front. You know, everybody was trying to get to the back. And I had got cycled up to the front. And I remember thinking about it. 
And I remember when I looked at it, I thought, there's no way I'm going to get close enough to it to kill it. Its legs are too long. It's going to be able to get me before I got, and I would just blow up for no reason. And so I, I, I thought maybe I could throw it at it or something. You know, I was trying to figure out some way to get some way to not get eaten. And um, while I was doing that, some other some other other kid from the left of me, he like slowly moved along the wall, I guess, and ran at it full speed. And he had the the grenade, the canister that they give us, like he was carrying a football, and he ran right up onto its its head and blew himself in half, and blew its head up, you know, blew its head into pieces and killed it. Uh, the crowd cheered. There was cheers, and then the door, both doors opened up behind us, and a bunch of lab coats came in. They said that that kid lived. Wow. Through that. And he was blown in half. His legs went one way and his body, his torso went the other. Um, but they came in and s- gathered him up. They went straight to him. Then they took us out and we went to a nearby room was like a hospital, you know, like a high tech hospital room. And we, we had examination. They examined us all. And we all had, it was like one room with all the beds and we slept in those beds that night and they were happy. They said we were a success and that that was, our program was going to be awesome. They were, they were thrilled. They said that everything went exactly how it was supposed to. Wow. Now, what you're what you're describing here, and and like you said, you go into this area of the size of a, a basketball court, and it's like almost like an arena. Uh, what I'm picturing is freaking like a gladiator scene. Is that what it was kind of like? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. So it was an operational. It was an operational combat test. Were the people there observing for educational purposes, or were they there to? be entertained i don't know you know what i mean like i i I, you could hear them yelling you know they were yelling they they were heckling us you're all gonna die you know like they were they were yelled down to us and they sounded like soldier aged men you know they were men that were of soldier age what they sounded like i mean whether they were i don't know i couldn't see but i it was a test it was a test of that technology of they were mind controlling kids that were easy to get that were not picked for the program. You know, I was snuck through the program somehow. I was a low grade, I was a slave. I wasn't some fighter pilot, you know. And um, so they were testing their mind control to see how what kind of boots on the ground they could put. They wanted numbers on the ground, so they that's what that was. Yeah, I now I because I, I imagine even in everyday scientific idea of things. Like say you have lab rats and you're doing these tests and stuff to see what they how they react to certain things. I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there, you know, university students that find it entertaining and they and they even make bets on what what's going to happen to the rat. You know what I mean? So I imagine it's almost like a similar situation where it's just like they're looking at you as like a test subject, not as an asset. Well, and the other thing is, is you know, it sounds it sounds like. Um Super barbaric, but really you got to think about if they have the ability to grow back the rest of your body, then really nobody's going to die doing it. So do you get what I mean? Like, it's morally, it's more acceptable when you think about the fact that it was unlikely that we were going to die. You know, that morally you could do something like, even though, I mean, it's hard to get your head around being that kind of, uh, that detached, but they have that kind of technology. You know, I've heard... um, other whistleblowers have said that, you know, you can get your head blown off and they can grow the rest of your body back for that head. And, you know, 
the uh, soldiers in the space program die many times. And as long as they, the, the rule is the, that I've heard from others is that as long as there's electro electric activity in a brain cell, they can bring you back. As long as you have electric activity in, in any brain cells, you know, just a few brain cells that still have electrical activity, they can bring you back to life. They can grow the rest of the body and they can suck you back. Basically your spark of life, your soul. And so, uh, once you think about that kind of technology, then yeah, that kind of opens the door to being those kind of abuses, I guess. I can't imagine what it was like being there, seeing some, I don't, I don't know if you knew the kid or not, but like seeing that happen, I mean, it's gotta be a shock to your system or is it something where at this point in time, you've seen so much that it, you're not getting shocked by a whole lot of stuff. No, no, I was totally in shock from that. And, you know, even worse than that is I took a couple steps closer to the bug. And I had no idea that those existed prior to that. They did, Like I said, that wasn't something that I was briefed for. Like, these are the bugs you'll be going against. There's a giant bug and, you know, this go and attack it like this. I had no idea that those even existed. That was my first sight of a creature like that. And it was trying to kill me. You know, like... That that I was in complete shock at that time. I, that whole, it was hours before I calmed down from that. Before I, my heart rate, you know, it was it was hours later before I got my head on straight at all. And I still couldn't sleep well that night. It was it was not, it was not cool. Um, but I remember looking at the bug. I stared at it, you know, and it was its head was blown. It had a big, you know, it was blown up, and it had many eyes on the front of it. I remember seeing the, all the different eyes and just thinking. That thing, you know, how huge it was, just that uh, you don't stand a chance with your bare hands, you know, near that. If you've ever been to the zoo and seen a lion up close, how huge they are, you don't stand a chance. It, right. it was that same kind of feeling of awe of being, you know, there, this was this was an apex predator that I had no business being in the same room with because I was just going to be fodder to it, you know. And that, that was a... Uh, that was a very traumatic experience. I mean, that, that's why I remembered it so much. I'm, you know, that's this. That's one of the memories that came back first, because I was just traumatized from that. You know, I had PTSD probably from that for a long time. You know, that was a very, it was a very hard thing to to go through. Yeah, I can imagine. Is PTSD something that you go through now from having these memories? You know, I had a lot of. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't. I'm. You know, I don't really study it. Uh, I remember reading about PTSD years ago and thinking, "Wow, I have all this. Why do I have this?" You know, I remember reading the the symptoms of it before I knew why, and thinking to myself, "Like, wow, I ha I have this. You know, why do you know? I've never done anything in my regular life. I've been pretty normal. I worked in construction. I've worked and I've just been a normal guy and like nothing really crazy. And so. Um, Remembering, and then I also had a lot of emotional stuff. You know, there is a healing process from it all. Really, remembering it once I was once I could remember it, then I could attribute times that I was uh, had had emotion. Like it's hard to give an example, but there were times when I would be scared for no reason or something, and I could look. But once I got my memories back, I could look and go, "Oh, I'm just thinking that. That's why." And then, boom, it could go away. The problem went away. So not knowing what caused it is what exacerbated the emotional stuff to go on longer. 
once I got my memories back and then I could assign why I, why I feel like I did or why I felt bad, I could solve it, you know? So as of now, no, I mean, I feel better than ever, to be honest, better in my, in my whole life because I've been able to number one, remember everything. And number two, be able to talk to other people about it, you know, talk it out. And at first I couldn't even talk about it. I was just, it was just like everything wanted to come out at once. Yeah, I can understand that. Uh, it's, I think people react differently to, you know, traumatic experiences and some people hold on to things for a long time and some people are able to get through it by speaking about it. Uh, my audience knows that's one of my biggest motivations for having this show is to allow people to just be open and honest about what they've experienced and get it off their chest because sometimes that's all they needed in order to move on in life. Or sometimes they actually dive deeper into things because they're like, okay, I've, I've been able to work through it and now I want to know more, you know? And so people react to things differently. Um, now I know you, that that happened on the moon, uh, which it's just it, for me. It's even weird to say that, you know. It's just like wow, you know. Uh, but that's not where your journey ends. I, I know you have you have a lot of things that happened, uh, but I think I think you said at one point, uh, not during this interview, but when we were talking I, or something, where I remember you sharing a story where you were. I don't know if you were part of some kind of military operation, but you actually got into some kind of combat and uh, experienced these one of these beings up close and uh, actually harming you. Was that on Mars? That was on Mars, yes. So what um, what happened with that? So the next day after, so we slept in our we slept in hospital beds that day, and the next day we were put on a big transport, a big triangular craft. And uh, there wasn't a lot of it wasn't packed. There was a lot of empty seats. And we and it was just like being on an airplane. But the rows, instead of seven or ten rows wide, it was 20, 30 seats wide. It was super wide from one okay. end to the other. Um, I said we were going to Mars, that we went to Mars and we got there pretty quick. And then we had to wait in orbit for something like two hours to get clearance to land. There was something going on. We were supposed to just go down and, and land, but there was a uh, some kind of incident going on, so we couldn't. We weren't clear to land, so we waited for like two hours in orbit around Mars. They, they and they turned off the artificial gravity and let the let us play in uh, zero g. But I was too scared to do it. I didn't. I didn't want to, so I just stayed with my seat belted. And I remember seeing other boys across on the other side of the thing floating around. And I always regretted that. So that was another thing that I remembered because of the emotion, because I, I regretted that, you know, I wish I would have done that. I really never, I really never was in zero G again after that. It's not um, like you didn't have enough once in a lifetime experiences. You had to experience the zero gravity too, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. Well, I, I thought I'd get another chance, but I really didn't. I had lower gravity. I, I, later on, years later, I, I could experience lower gravity, lesser gravity but not zero. <clears throat> Anyhow, so we landed, and as soon as we got off the thing, um, it was a big hangar, like a big hangar, and we went right over to a smaller craft, um, all of us, and then they flew us out to a base that was, ba like, abandoned. And it was an underground, it was an underground, the, the, the craft we were on went inside and landed inside of it, and when we went in, we were totally underground. 
we never like landed and then walked into it. Um, and then we took an elevator and there were levels of it. And it was a U.S. military operation. They were Marines. They were Marine Corps Special Division guys. They were U.S. soldiers, straight up. Was you know, and there were officers and there were twenty soldiers. I'm taking you know, it's been a while since I thought about it at all, but fifty soldiers. I think all in all, there were 50 people and there was enough room in there for 100 or 200 people. So it was an abandoned place. And I guess it was a forward base. And it had a, the top level had a hospital closest to the ground. And then it had another, like, uh, command apartments and stuff. And then it had another level. And the bottom level had where we lived and uh, the cafeteria. And it was like a mall or like a school. It was like an elementary school or like a junior high kind of construction and it went off into different areas that were color-coded like you know there was a blue wing and a red wing and a, and a yellow you know and you went you followed the line the blue line to go to where and they had converted a office space there were office cubicles with the lights out kind of you know in a hallway and they put cots instead of where the desks were they put cots there and that's where we slept they, it wasn't. We didn't get a room or anything. And then across the hall from that was a bathroom that we all used with showers. And uh, what we were doing was we were being split up into groups of six of us, and we went every other day out on hikes on the surface. And we had environmental suits, but the the face was open, and it had you know it gave you oxygen. The suit registered if you your oxygen level, and if you needed more, it would give you some. But you could breathe the air there. It was chilly, it was cold, and uh, the weather could change quick. It was really windy. It would get really windy, but some days were nice. And uh, I went on three separate hiking missions outside of the base with soldiers and with, with all the other guys like me. And we were in bright white, like a latex, like a rubber. It was the most comfortable, to this day, it was the most comfortable pair of shoes and clothes that I had ever tried on. Nothing has ever been more comfortable than what I wore that those on they, it was extremely it was unreal it was freakishly comfortable to wear um but it was like a latex environmental suit it had a small backpack i had a it was a rail gun they had rail guns they were um they fired a projectile it wasn't a like a laser beam or something it was a high-speed projectile and uh it had some kind of fantastic power, power electrical uh battery that that did it um, I had a small railgun and it was attached to my arm and it had a little, the, the stock of it, I could let go and it would fold up and I could grab it and that would, that would arm it. So okay. if I folded it down, I could grab the trigger I, that would make it armed. But if I let go, it would fold back up out of the way of my hand and it was safety. And that was the weapon I didn't get. Turns out I only fired it once. Um, but the first time we went out, we went hiking, there were soldiers and they had a fantastic armor. And what it was is their armor was heavy, so it made them weigh negative buoyant or whatever. How, I, I don't know that if I'm saying the right term, but basically they weighed with, with all their armor and their stuff, they weighed the same there than they would on Earth here. So they could run. You just They could run and jump and do things there exactly like they were on Earth. So the gravity didn't hinder them. We were in much lighter suits. We were just in an environmental suit. And they. I was told that uh, well, we were told that if we did well and our, our program was expanded, we would get better suits later. But we, I mean, we were in bright, we were in white. So we were bait, you know, the other guys had camo. 
but um, we had a hard time running. It was less gravity on the surface. And so when you got running, it would turn into a hopping, you know, big, big hops after you start, if you tried to go fast. It was still kind of awkward. It wasn't easy to do. You'd fall down, you know. But the soldiers, because they, because they had armor, because they, they had equipment that weighed them down, they walked around effortlessly. Um, they made it look easy. But they would always take off. We, we would follow them for the first few hundred yards out, and then they would say, you guys go that way, and we'll go this way. And the very first mission, we didn't even have a map. We didn't. They said they had, one of us had a radio that they could talk to, and that was it. We had no, nothing else, no compass, no nothing. And uh, they were testing it out. It was they were testing. They were testing a, a system out. By the later on, we had little digital maps that showed us on there. You know, we had a map on our arm on the third mission. Um, the first time we went out and we didn't see it, nothing. It was like uh, early in the morning, or the right around noon. You know, the sun was high, or it was, at least it was warmer. You know, and. Um, we walked for a couple hours, you know, an hour out and an hour back, and nothing happened. That was it. And then I remember the next guy, bunch of guys went the next day, and we didn't go anywhere. And then the following day, we went again. And it was later on in the day, and they, they it was like 3 in the afternoon, you know, worth of afternoon. And uh, we went out, and the soldiers split from us. And when we came back, they, they were everybody was happy. They were high-fiving. So there was something happened. There was some kind of combat happened, and... We didn't witness it. I didn't hear anything or see anything. But apparently there was an engagement, and they were thrilled about it. The soldiers were, were thrilled about it, about how it worked out. Um, the last one, we were briefed. Right at the door, we would have briefings. Because, you know, it's funny. They have artificial gravity. They have gravity plating. So inside the base, you're at, you're at 1G. We were at gravity. Once you walked out the front door, then you got in the lighter gravity, and you could it got awkward, you know. So right at that very, I remember right at that door, we would get briefings on what we were going to do, and um, we sent out, and we were supposed to walk uh, along a trail, and then they would follow us along a ridge, and we were going to do a circle and the same thing. And um, bad weather happened, it, uh, you know, like a like bad weather blew in. It was really quick too how it did, and it got dark. And uh, we got separated, and we started to get an argument. Uh, the one one of us wanted to stay in visual range of the soldiers. One of the soldiers said, "Stay where we can see you," and he thought that meant stay within visual range. And we got away. They were up on a hill. They were up on a mountaintop, and you know here, and we were out down in a valley. And we started getting away from them. And so he said, "I'm going to go where they can see us." And I said, "You know," and myself and others said, "No, this is we got to follow the map. This is our trail." We have a, they gave us a map. We're supposed to stay on the trail. You're going to get in trouble. So we ended up splitting up. Um, three of them went one way, and three of us went the other way and kept going the way we were planned. And we could hear um, – you could hear them uh, coming up behind you. And the weather – like I said, the weather got bad. We couldn't see very much well, but we could hear the bugs behind us, you know, in the distance. You could hear – I mean, they were moving fast. They were like trampled, like it was loud, and uh, but we couldn't see them. It was a dunes part, you know. So we started running, and um, which turned into hopping from dune to dune. And uh, we stopped. We saw a spot where there was some sunlight coming, and we wanted to get there so we'd be visible, hopefully for someone else to see us. Uh, 
And uh, I remember I was in front and I fell. I was in front of the other guys running or hopping and I fell down and they passed me up and I got up and started running again. And I, I saw there were little, <clears throat> it's hard to explain. Uh, you know, this isn't a conversation you have every day, but there were a few of the bigger spider ones like on the moon and there were little beetle ones. And as they okay. ran, they had wings that they didn't fly, but they had wings that pushed them so they could run faster. And they came up, I mean, super fast. Uh, they came extremely fast around me. And I remember I was in the air jumping from dune to dune. I was in the air and I got shot at one and missed. And while my arm was out, one of the spider ones came up behind me and bit my arm off. I mean, right there. I mean, just bit it, bit it off the gun. Everything was gone. And I fell down and then it stood on top of me. It stood on me and held me. And I looked over the dune, and more of them kind of went went over the dune, and I could hear those guys getting killed. They got crunched up. They got, you know, they were being bitten. You could hear it. And um, I was in shock. You know, I was losing blood. We had, we had the, apparently the soldiers had tourniquets inside their armor, so if they lost an arm, the armor would tourniquet. But okay. because our suits were an enviro suit, they, they showed us, you know, we had one auto tourniquet each, and it was like, it was like a pack of cigarettes, and it had a cord, and you could hit the button and pull it out, put it on you, and, and let go, and it would auto-tourniquet. It was an auto-tourniquet. And um, I remember wanting to get that on. I thought I was going to die. You know, I was losing blood, but I was being held down. And then it picked me up, and I looked up and saw a mantid, um, a bug that was looked way different than the other ones. The other ones were kind of like hideous. And this one was different. It looked it looked better, for lack of a you know it looked for lack of a better word, it looked better than the other ones. And uh, it it kind of came up. It had antennas, and it came up close to me, like almost almost face to face, maybe like three four feet away. And the antennas went, Whoa. and I was instantly like in a dream, like I lost consciousness, like I was in a dream with it. And uh, it started looking through places I had been. It, it went back and looked at the room where I was sleeping, that cubicle. It was like I was there with it, and it looked. And then I went back to, you know, um, on the moon, and then it, it looked into my memory. It was going through my memories, and it looked at back to Inu, the, the air base, the MK Ultra stuff. And it was talking to somebody else that I couldn't hear. Like, it was reporting what it saw. Like, we're in a dream. We're in a dream. And um, I was begging it. I was like, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. I don't want to die. Please don't kill me. I was begging for my life. And uh, he looked and he said to me, um, I don't want to kill you, but if I'm ordered to, I'm going to have to. So just, just to be fair to you, he's like, I don't really want to kill you. You know, it's what he said. And he said, but if I'm ordered to, I will. Let's, we're going to look. We're going to check you out and see if it's see what we're dealing with here. He's like, just hang hang tight. And, you know. And he went through my memories, and uh, eventually it ended up, and we went to the house in Seattle, and then uh, eventually it ended up, I was standing in my living room of my house I grew up in, the house I was taken from, my original farmhouse. I was standing in that living room, it was empty, and I had no idea what it was, I didn't remember it. And we were standing in the living room, and he goes, this is who you are. This is who you are. And then I woke up, and I was sitting there, you know, like stuck back into shock from my arm being missing 
and it was right there. And then it walked, it let me go. The other bug dropped me and let me go. And I stood up and, uh, sat there. And I, I, I think I said it again, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. You know, I was still freaking out. And, uh, one of the little beetle ones like communicated to it. I didn't hear what it said, but it communicated to it. And he looked at it and said, kind of motioned his head towards me and it bit my foot off. It, it came and bit my foot right off at the ankle and I fell down and they just took off. They just, they, they all moved at once. They all moved it. They all moved at once when they, when they moved, they were in complete unison and then they ordered up and went, you know, that was, that was how they did it. And they just took off. I mean, literally they kicked up dirt. They left a cloud behind them. And, um, I started crawling towards the bodies. I crawled up over the dune. I put the auto tourniquet on that I had on my arm. I crawled over the dune. I saw the other two guys. They were bitten to pieces. I mean, they were bitten into pieces. And I got the one guy's, uh, the other auto tourniquet off, and I put that around my ankle. And at that point, I had stopped bleeding, but I knew I was in bad shape. And I started crawling back the way I came. And um, I didn't go very far, and the two soldiers got caught up with me. One soldier grabbed me and he gave me an injection. There were, or the suits gave injections, but he gave, he injected me with something, and I felt okay. I still, it still hurt really bad. And in fact, it made it hurt worse. Uh, you know, the injection he gave me made me feel the pain more. Um, but I stood up and he started carrying me back. And the other one was looking for more auto tourniquets. I guess the other three guys got contacted too, and uh, he marched me all the way back. And he, towards the end, he was saying. You know, stay up. He was slapping me, and he was saying, stay awake, stay awake. You know, you can't go to sleep. And uh, if you stay up, you're going to see a purple sunset. You know, the sun's about to set. You're going to see a purple sunset. But the weather was the weather was shitty. And um, But I did kind of see like a, like, a, like a line of purple along the sunset. There was a purple. The sunsets were purple. And uh, as soon as I laid eyes on the door, the, the door was in, kind of hidden in the hill. The door to the base was, was hidden. And as soon as I saw it, he let me go to sleep, and I passed right out. When I woke up the next morning in a hospital bed, I had my arm and my foot back. Wow. So, I mean, totally, like, no scar, no nothing. There was a, there was a bandage there, and there, my arm was, was back just how it was. So do you think they gave you new arms, or do you think they somehow regrew it? I mean, you probably don't even know. I was out for that. You know, they did. They explained it to me, but I didn't pay any attention. You know, like, I, it was... I could care less um, how it happened at the point yeah. he said, he used the blah, 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 blah on you. You know, I don't remember. Um, but it was back. I was there in that bed. And I said, do I get to, I kind of wanted to stay there and not do anything that day. I'm sure. But I had to go back to with the other guys. You know, I had to go. But they sent somebody there. There was an officer that came and debriefed me. And it was really quick. You know, I, he didn't really grill me that much. He's what happened? We saw we got, they had pictures or they had they had uh, surveillance, like they saw what happened from a distance. You know they could see. <clears throat> but um, he said we saw what happened, and just tell us what that bug told you. And I said he told me to tell you that they're not that stupid. That was the message he gave me to give them. He told me to tell your superiors we're not this dumb. And that canceled the program. They canceled it. We never went on any more combat wow. missions. They canceled the entire thing, and we sat there for about. Another month to six weeks doing not doing nothing. We zero. We just it was a lame duck. You know, we got up. We didn't have anything to do. 
No, no routine, no nothing. We had, we got up, we went to the cafeteria for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and we went back to our cots and we just sat there. We had nothing to do. It was lame. So, you were bait, and they said, "We're not that stupid, you know. We're not going to fall for it." So you're, you know, I mean, you have nothing to do. Um, at what point did you realize, though, that you were bait? Was this something that when you were in your training, they were telling you this? Or do you get out there and you're just like, hold on a second. No, no. They, I think there's something going on here. Exactly. They were training us. They were telling us that, you know, you're a badass. They were training us to think that we were going to go and kick ass. Yeah. You know, we weren't supposed to. They were saying that um, the training was to lay down your life for your brother, and your brother was that next guy next to you. We were... We were trained to suicide bomb, kind of, you know, to be a suicide guy. And uh, it it wasn't the best thing. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think they could have done better overall. But yeah. I think they were trying to get numbers. I think that they were trying to get effective troops there to help their real soldiers that were expensive and, t- and hard to train. They were trying to get as many people as they could as quickly and cheaply. as, And they were trying to see how cheap. They could get us there, you know, with what least amount of training, least amount of equipment that they could put numbers out there. And um, I think the bugs just adapted way too quick, so they canceled it. I think they, I think they, they expected the bugs to adapt eventually, but not that quick, you know, not in a day or two. Yeah. I mean, it seems just like such a, a simple strategy. I mean, train you up to, you know, act like you're the tough guy. Go out there, yeah, be macho. Get some attention to these things. Go find them, yeah. Yeah, go do that. We'll yeah, yeah, exactly, and we'll snipe them off. Uh, but it's just, that's incredible. So, I mean, this memory that you have of losing your arm, losing your foot, is was that, like, how do I even say this? Like, is Because sometimes people, when they remember something, they actually feel... It's like I think it's like a mental thing where they actually start feeling that pain that they once did. Is that anything that ever affected you where like you almost feel like you, you feel that pain when you think back on it? The thing that I felt, the thing that I remember from it is I remember it was very painful, but I don't remember the actual hurting of it. But I remember that it was very painful. But I remember um, stumbling around like I remember when I was on the ground crawling that I wanted to use my arm to crawl. I remember, I remember, I remember the absence of the arm. I remember crawling around, and what it was is I ended up having to, like that, you know, crawl with my arm. And I remember always wanting to use my other arm, but I couldn't. I, I remember that feeling, that feeling of it, uh, the absence of it, is huge. That was a huge thing. That those first, those first minutes of a day adapting to not having it that feel that is something that's what i remember the most yeah you know that part of it that that feeling of reaching for my right arm to do something and it not being there there was still uh, you know like your brain is still thinks you have an arm at that point yeah and it's something you don't forget i'm sure i've heard of that before where people who wake up in the hospital and they had to have their leg amputated it's like mentally they can still feel the foot even though it's not there because i guess the nerves or something haven't registered yet that there's nothing there. Uh, it, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy and trippy to think about. Uh, the whole Mars and Moon. Uh, what was the missions here? I mean, were they were they building just bases for further exploration, or were there multiple reasons why they were on these planets? 
Or yeah, don't you know? I mean, the moon is, um, you know, the base on the moon was, I don't want to say huge, but it was a, um, uh, you know, um, it, the moon was the was the first the the jumping off point. It was very important, you know, like that's where they have all their resources. And you got to think, if you have a base on the moon, you can pretty much draw up. You're out of the jurisdiction of everywhere. You can make your own law. So if they get you there, you know, nobody else is going to get you there. They can. You're in an all, another set of laws. So you can agree or disagree to something, you know, and then they can do whatever they want. And on the back side of the moon, doesn't the moon's in tidal lock, so you can't see the back of it ever. But uh, Mars, they were trying. Mars, they were living alongside, obviously living alongside intelligent insectoids, and they were trying to get uh, territory. They were trying to expand territory, and so however that was working, you know, uh, they were trying to move in. So yeah, I mean that's basically general tactics that we have here on earth you know 2000 years ago you, you you're fighting for land and you know you, you strategize and whoever has the best strategy gets the land yeah i don't know if they tried to do the uh infected blankets of measles to the bugs or if that worked but i'm sure that that's pretty much the point in history that i was at when i was there that they were fighting with the indigenous for territory you know, I, that seems like it. What it was to me, again, they didn't. Re- it's not like I read the news every day. They didn't really. It was need to know, and I didn't need to know much. You know, the whole time. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Uh, what are your thoughts on Elon Musk talking about wanting to go to Mars? Uh, you know, he's this genius guy, and he's got all these different great ideas, and it seems like they just let him do whatever he wants, shoot cars into space and things like that. I mean, do you think if Elon Musk gets to the point where he's literally capable of doing something like that, that either they're going to have to fill him in or somehow stop him? I wouldn't. Well, first of all, I think anybody that has their own rocket already knows. That makes sense. And... um I think they painted themselves into a hell of a corner. I think that they, I think the Germans got up there and I think there was an ensuing contest to see who could get up there. And I think the ETs up there don't want us to know. And so they're like, they're going along with it. Like rather than tell the public about it, they said, look, we'll go along with these ETs. They'll help us. They'll let us come up there as long as we don't tell anybody about it. And I think everybody has painted themselves into a corner. I think that they I think that at some point the Germans thought that they would just kill everybody. Once we got to the point where we're all going to find out, I think they thought they'd just kill us all off. I think that's what the whole Georgia Guidestone thing is, that they had this doomsday plan and they'd kill us all off. And then they could just tell us whatever lie and start it all over again, put us back into the Stone Ages. And then they could have their the same exact system in place and go for another thousand years of living uh, in the solar system in luxury. And then using us to do whatever they needed down here. Um, but I think that other ETs won't allow it. I think that's what happened. I th- honestly, I, I think that's something that's happened. I think other ETs that came along and said, I don't think so. You're not going to kill everybody off. You're going to have to let these people know. And I think they painted themselves into a corner that there's just no easy way for them to come clean. And tell us, like, look, we've been in space. We've been living in space with ETs. On, there are ETs in the Earth right now, you know, on Earth right now, and in the Earth that have been here for a long time, 
And for them to tell us that, that our entire system, our money is a lie, that everything's a lie, that the religion was a technology used by ETs, that they live on the moon, they've been doing experiments, they've dug people, they've been, people have been doing slavery, on and on and on. I mean, are they going to tell that to the average person? Soccer mom? You're going to tell soccer mom that? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. You're not. You're not going to. They're not going to. They're, they're going to. People are going to vomit when they hear that. So they painted themselves in the corner. I think the things like Elon Musk, I think that they're going to have to break it to us incrementally. They're, you know, it would be great from people like me and you and people watching the show that already have kind of a basis of distrust for the system. People that have a basis of evidence to build upon that we know something's wrong. You know, um, it's easy for us, for them to, if they ripped the whole Band-Aid off and showed us all at once, you know, it would be easy for us to get our head around it. Right. You're not thinking about soccer mom, dude. You know, you're not thinking about Johnny Wall Street who just believes that the people that are thriving in the system are going to reject changes or doubts of the system. They're going to reject. It's going to it's just going to not make sense to them, you know, and uh, the mind control, the fact that we've all been brainwashed, you know, I mean, we're going to wake up one time and find out that something very core that we believe is not true because we've been brainwashed into commercialism you know we get subliminal stuff constantly the uh the music the television everything we watch has a signal has a brainwashing to it component to it that makes us believe one thing over another and we are not uh we're we're a consumer driven society and it's a lie it's a bunch of bullshit and so once once the the veil is lifted you know people are going to be shocked from it and i don't think and look uh, I caught flack from saying this before. Like people said, you know, we could handle it and we could, if they ripped the whole bandaid off tomorrow and everything, if they told us everything on the news, it'd be fine. People would be fine. You know, there was not going to be riot. I don't think there'll be giant riots in the street. I don't think there'll be super turmoil. There'll be some financial stuff. How many people are going to quit working? You know, are you going to yeah. go to work and still work for money? That's you find out is worthless. So there's going to be some of that, but I think that, Doing that is one way. I think that they're just trying to find the right way to tell us right now. I think guys like Elon Musk, we've got the NASA's going on. They're cracking down on all the pedophiles. You know, that whole system, the satanic stuff yeah. is all the Hillary emails and the pedogate. That's all hitting the fan. they got to clean up all that. They've got to clean up their own mechanisms of control over us that have been infiltrated for so long. And then they're going to go about telling us. That, hey, there's been, you know, they're going to have to say, they're going to have to say they've been in space all along. That there's been a space program and that there are people up there. We have brothers and sisters. We have people, uh, we have Americans that are descended from Americans. We have people that are descended from Europeans that have been up there for generations now. That are our brothers, are, you know, they're our relatives. And they live up there. They live on Mars. Uh, Randy Kramer estimated 10 and a half million people on Mars right now. Really? When I was on the Ceres Colony Corporation planet, when I was on planet Ceres, I was aware of about 225,000 people living there. Wow. Among ETs, with ET races. So, I mean, those are people that are born there, they're going to die there. You know, they're citizens there. And they are descendants from our descendants. They're, our, they're, they're relatives of ours. So, they're, so at some point, at some point, they're going to have to come clean about it because killing us all has been, I think, has been ruled out. You know, just whacking us has been ruled out. So 
I think the GMO, I think the food poisoning is part of, uh, was part of one of the early plans, you know, just poison everybody, sterilize everybody so that everybody dies off in two generations and then they can make up whatever lie they want. But we're getting to the tipping point where somebody in their backyard can build a telescope and discover and see everything. Kind of like, like the Truman Show. You know, we're getting to the point right. where um, the co- you're not going to need a college laboratory to access this technology, some of this technology. We're going to get to the point where somebody with a computer and a telescope is going to say, look, th- there it is, right there, and prove it. So they, they have to come up with something. They, they're going to have to come clean somehow. Yeah, and, you know, I think when they do come out with any kind of disclosure, I think you will have a certain amount of people that take it and they run with it to suicide and things like that. I do think that that will happen because oh, I, oh. There, there's people that, are, that, that have these deep-rooted belief systems in their lives, and if you uproot that, it's like, in their mind, why am I living? What's the point? Exactly. Oh, well, there's going to be a lot of that, and there's going to be a lot of people that um, put a spin on it. You know, the you know the biggest thing the the biggest thing that I found after my experience of living up there amongst ETs and traveling to other worlds as a cargo engineer on it. Basically, I worked on a UFO. You know, my experience, but drawing back off the memories, what I what I learned from that is people want to assign that ETs are good or bad. I get that. Why don't the good ETs just come and help us? Why don't the good ETs step in and beat the bad guys up? <laughs> and you know why? Because that's a schoolboy's version of events. There's no, you know, the there's no there isn't a good ET. They're not. There's there's not a really a bad ET. They're, the bad ETs are are self self serving, and so that makes them bad for us. It makes it evil for us. You know, and I say, I say that my thing like this is like, well, is the United States is are all the people in the United States bad? Because to the Iraqi people, they are. And to the Vietnamese people, we were. We were bad. We were evil to the North Vietnamese while we were kicking their butt all over the place. We were evil to them. It's a matter of perspective. We're not bad people. We're not good either. We're not the good guys. We're not going to go and save anybody that doesn't have our interests in mind. We don't roll into places where there's uh, terrible injustices in the world and police it because we got nothing better to do. We, just, we mind our own business until it's our business. And the ETs are the exact same way. It's the exact same way. There is no good guy that's going to come and help us out. There's no bad guy that's out boogeyman that's out really out, super out to get us. You know, they want to control us as a resource. But there's, you know, they could really, they're not, they're, they're more worried about their own problems than being a boogeyman. You know, like we have to let go of the notion of good and bad. We have to get we have to get our head around that someone can be a complete uh, douchebag and still not be a bad person. Someone can be an ET can be a completely disgusting thing and still not be uh, unworthy of life. You know, like we yeah. have to, we're gonna have to grow. We're gonna have to grow, and and that's really what stunted our growth is lack of that knowledge. Do you know what I mean? Every like, look at our mm-hmm. politics right now. Um, it's bad. It's we're we're told that you know if you're not perfect, you're evil. If you're not perfect. 
you don't deserve anything. You know what I'm saying? That you, you, then screw you. You have to be absolutely perfect. And none of us are really, I mean, we're all bad guys. I'm, I'm a great guy in many ways. In many ways, I'm a complete screw up. Right. Myself, myself, me. And so, uh, so is everybody else though. So, I mean, if I was, I'm, thank God I'm never run for office because I would get tore up. (laughs) Once they dug into my, you know what I mean? It would be hell. Because I'm just normal, you know what I mean? But that I'm not, I don't consider myself some savior, but I don't consider myself evil either. And I think that notion, we have to lose that notion when we start talking about entire civil species of, of intelligent beings. When we're talking about an entire species of an intelligent being, then you can't say that, oh, those reptiles are evil, they eat people. Well, some of them are cool as hell, man. You know, some of them are cool, just guys that are going through their, they got a family to raise and they got a, a nine to five they do. They got a job just like we do, and they're cool guys, and they just mind in their own business. They also have people in charge of them in their government that like to eat people and conquer worlds. You know that doesn't make them all evil. It's, we have to we have to turn down that the the black and white of it all of yeah. everything, even ourselves. And, and that what you said does make sense when you use the example of you know to Iraq, we're all bad. You know, that's it, a, that's a really good example. It really is. I mean, because uh, there are, you know, in the Middle East, the the anywhere really <laughs> in the world, other countries have their perspective as to what America is, who Americans are, and it's all based off of you know what they've been told and what they've been propagandized to think and things like that, and so. Uh, it's skewed. We're not all bad people. There are good people here, but you know, unfortunately, there are people in other parts of the world that think that we're all bad people and they just want to kill us. And that's exactly. just not fun. You know, I mean, you don't have to go far. There are, there are Canadians that can't stand Americans. Sure. You <laughs> they I mean? they want to build a wall there too sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you can go. There are plenty of Canadians that can't stand the United States people. It's just a cultural thing. And, you know, that doesn't mean we don't get to exist, you know. The, a lot of people um, hate the president right now. There's a lot of fervor sure. about it, you know. And I look at it this way. I think that I say it like this, like, yeah, he's not perfect. And it's easy to hate somebody that's got such a, you know, an ego. You know, you look at the things he highlighted. You know, they say racist and all that. Well, the, the things they highlight that were kind of dumb for him to say, I think a lot of people have said. And... Um, don't have to fo- don't have to answer for it because they're not president. I think that you can be a racist and a bigot and a total jerk and work at Subway and make a great sandwich. I think you can be a total douchebag across the window from me and make my sandwich make a great sandwich for me that I ordered and get the job done. And I think that the president is no different. I think he can be a douchebag but he can still do the job. You know, it's just a job. At the end of the day it's a job. It's not He's not a savior. He doesn't have to be perfect. He's not perfect. He's not perfect. The last one wasn't perfect, and the one before that wasn't perfect either. They were all douchebags in their own right. I'm a douchebag too. You, you know what I mean? In my own right. If you really sit and want to quote some stuff I've said in the sure. past, you can dig me up to be make me look horrible. Any media, the media can. And I uh, we just ha- I think we just have to turn down the hate, man. You know we have to yes. not forget, not forgive, not forget, but not condemn so much either you know i think that you know he has to answer for what things he said and that are bad and things he's done with women and and races and that's just a lesson he's got to learn 
but I don't think he deserves to be the hate he's gotten over it either. I think the hate is got to go. Uh, if you were an ET looking at us hating people like that and not getting over it, then you wouldn't want to visit here either, would you? No, and the the hate that is being outwardly portrayed now in our society. I, I don't know what the rest of the world's like. I don't live in the rest of the world, but in our in our own society here in America, I know what it looks like. And the hate that's being outwardly outwardly portrayed uh, has been festering for much longer than uh, one single president has been in office. And yeah. it, it's it's a heart issue of of the at least the American people, but I would say all mankind because I know there's hate all over the world. Uh, it's a heart issue, and, and people have hate in their hearts, and they over time. I I, th- I really think that people not intentionally, but to a sense that they, they've been conditioned to find a reason to expel their hate onto other people. And now we're living in a world and society where everybody does. It's, it's okay. You have to pick a side and you have to find somebody you ha- that you hate. End of story. Like, like if you look at the news, look at the mainstream media. There's two sides of the coin. That's it. They want you to pick either side A or side B, black or white. There is no gray. And 100%. And if you pick the other side, you are um, evil. Right. On both, well. I mean, you're, like, you pick one side, you're evil. You pick the other side, you're evil. So the other side, there, there is no winning in this, this game that's being played right now. I want to believe that it's all going to balance itself out in the end. I don't know how. That's just when, when, I'm, when, I'm, feeling, when I'm feeling really positive, that's what I want to believe. But I have no idea how something like this can balance out in the end because there is just so much it's so much hate and there's so many people out there that are refusing to think on their own and they're will they're allowing themselves to be manipulated by others whether it's the mainstream media or the people around them they, they find something that they first latch on to and that's it they don't they don't want to explore any other ideas they don't want to explore any other thought processes they build up these walls to surround themselves with people that think just like them and if anybody else infiltrates that mindset they are whatever they they're hated and i just yep. think that we need to stop with this hate that we have going on with whatever it is like right now with what we're recording today, you know, this week, the whole Nike thing, I I don't care what you think about Nike and I don't care what you think about Colin Kaepernick. Either side that you're on with that, I don't care. Stop hating your fellow Americans because of how they view a certain thing. We don't have to hate each other over these kind of things. Yep. Yep. I don't, I don't feel that he has Colin Kaepernick. It's the same thing. Like even if I don't, I, I don't not really educated on the matter, but I don't feel anybody deserves that kind of hate, unless they hurt somebody, unless they physically hurt. You know, like it's different. You know, like a pedophile or something. Jeffrey they Dahmer. Deserve, huh? Just like Jeffrey yeah, Jeffrey like Dahmer. A Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. But he was like a sickness. Even then, I don't really. You know, it's hard to hate him if it was somebody personal. Right. He did. I, I, I've more like pity him for being sick, kind of thing. You know, even the worst people in the. The worst people, the most criminals, I, I, I feel more pity for them. Hmm. The people that put me through what I went through, I feel more pity for them for being sick, for not having any kind of empathy or not understanding really how the universe works. I feel pity on them for being sick more than I feel hate for them. You know, I, yeah. I don't hate them because, uh, you know, I just feel like it's something that can be cured. 
I just feel like somebody that's a complete fool can be cured of it eventually. At least I hope so. I mean, you know, maybe that's maybe that's foolish of me, you know. But I just see how I work. I just know that some days I'm I uh, some days I'm a better person than others. And that's the that's the way you know what that and that's the way it is for everybody. It's just unfortunately right now we're living in a time where people aren't introspect and introspective and they're not looking at themselves and seeing what can I approve on on my own self who who can I be tomorrow that's better than today they're not doing that they're living off of other people and they they they're not looking in the mirror anymore and trying to improve their lives and being a better person in the society within you live and well, that's uh, the, good that's the system I talked about earlier that's going to have to come down at some point we're we're so commercially driven we're we're you're not you're not uh, programmed through school and work and everything and all the commercials to make yourself a better person. You're programmed to make your things look better around you. You're programmed to make your house look nicer, to make your car stay nicer, to make your clothes stay brand new. You're programmed to do that and to judge other people by that. You're, that's what you're programmed to do. You're not programmed to make yourself better on the inside in any way, shape, or form. In fact, you're discouraged. If you feed the homeless, it's a damn crime, you know? And so yeah. uh, it's the system because if you're a giant corp- – the corporations that took over, it's in their interest, you know? Uh, at some point, people are going to have to realize that everybody being happy is in everybody else's interest. And the commercialism thing is, you know I, – I, I love capitalism. I think it works, I, you know, but it has to be regulated and it has to be tapered off a bit at some point. Um, because it's dangerous when it's out of control and it's out of control right now. We've been infiltrated by corporations in our, in our country. The country is no longer makes laws in the interests of the child, of the children or the people. It makes inter- it makes laws in the interests of corporations and it's got, that's got to stop. Otherwise we're, the ship's going to sink. Yeah. And what you just said, I mean, just look at 2008, the bailouts that happened there. I mean, like the crimes that were committed, uh, during that time when we went, you know, almost bankrupt as a country and who was bailed out, you know what I mean? And who had to pay for well, it? That, I mean, well, that was them. Okay. Um, let's, I want to jump back into, uh, some SSP stuff. So we did. So after Mars, I was retrained on ship repair and then moved to Ceres colony where I was put on a ship and I worked on one for six or seven, eight years. And I didn't do anything but repair down under it. I didn't see out the window. I didn't meet the crew. It did nothing. It was Groundhog Day. It was I wanted to die. Um, but eventually I got promoted and I did cargo. And we would pick up cargo often at a place called Diego Garcia. We would fly in in the middle of the night. And this is Germans. Uh, the crew was German, the, the command crew of the ship. The labor crew down in the cargo area was uh, American and European people, people from Europe. There were guy. There was a guy that spoke Italian. He was from Italy, and he worked there. He was a slave too, like me. Um, we would go to a place. We would go to Diego Garcia in the middle of the night, and only a few officers had clearance of that we were there. There were only four or five guys on the base that knew we were there, picking up picking up cargo and dropping it off. Everybody else was, you know, had they had to go to bed at a certain time and stay in there, so nobody knew we were there. Um, there was a manifest that we had to sign. Somebody from the cargo bay or somebody had to come down. Usually usually an officer would have to go down 
and just supervise everything. One of the command crew, and he would sign. But then after a while, it got to be routine, and then so one of our guys would sign. We had to sign a paper, like a receipt, for the cargo that we, we took. And one day it was me. One day I signed it. And the guy was an American soldier, American military officer, was the guy who handed me the clipboard to sign. And so he was fully aware that we were a spacecraft with Germans on it. He fully, was fully aware of what was going on. And he said, you guys are starting to run up a tab. You need to let them know that they need to square this tab up. And it was something like $9 million. You know, the number, the number, it was like eight or $9 million of money that the tab, it was, a, it was, it showed it, it was a receipt for cargo. So I, at that time I would go in the mornings to, um, the mission briefings first thing in the morning. I didn't go to the slave entrance of the ship. I would go to the front entrance, ride the elevator up. And I sat with the command crew and I uh, reported on how much space I, I had. I had a report on how much volume of the cargo hold I had, how much weight, how much stuff we had on hand, what it weighed and how much volume we had available. That was my report and what I did in the morning. And that morning at the end of it, they said, uh, does anybody have anything to add? And I raised my hand and I said, you know, last night I signed at Diego Garcia and that guy said, we're running a big tab and we need to pay it. And they were broke into tears, laughing, all of them. They broke into tears. They cried laughing at me. They didn't pay anything for anything that we picked up. It was a lie. The, the officer there thought that money was changing hands, that one day he would get a sheet and it would say zero again. And so he thought we paid money. They didn't pay anything. When we picked up cargo, when we found a... When we found a alien race that we could trade with, we would offer them things that were made on Earth. We had, we had packages with samples of everything, raw material. If they wanted, say, for instance, aspirin or coffee, coffee was a drug out there. If they wanted something that we grew here on Earth and we could produce, they said, well, yeah, we'll trade us some. We need 50 tons of that, and we'll give you this plans to make this doohickey. We would come and get it at Diego Garcia. It would get shipped there, and then we would pick it up and take it and trade with them. But we were not – the Germans, the German series colony corporation was not paying a dime for anything. Everything went freely. So that's the level of slavery we're under. That's The corporations have that squared away because really the money is just for you and me to stay – to keep working. On that level, they were just taxing the – resources of the earth to trade with other species so that was the, the currency knowledge the the mission the mandate was to trade goods for tech we wanted technology we didn't want to go and trade somebody some spice for some gold or some salt for some spices some tasty spice that we never had they did i mean we did that we didn't want to trade for some newfangled stuff we wanted technology period end of story we wanted to figure out a, a newer, better, a newer, better blender. You know, they wanted the next level of technology, the newer thing. And that was our mission. That was our entire mandate of our ship. And there are ships out there right now doing the same thing. Yeah. And every now and then we did get some pretty high tech stuff. You know, and that's the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm listening to you tell your experience, your singular personal experience and until you just said that you know it's hard to imagine but like 
according to what you're say, saying, there are. It's still going on. Like there, there's there's tons of people just like you that are involved in this. I my time. Okay, so I didn't go. Um, I, I built. I drew out the timeline, and it goes from eighty uh, two. So you would say twenty years to that would go to two thousand and two. But really, because okay, so this is kind of hard to get your head around if you follow the the trips that I was doing in the space. We would leave at eight o'clock in the morning and go for 10 hours, and then we'd get back at 8 o'clock. So I experienced a 30-hour day in a 34-hour day in a 24-hour day, if you look at it like that, I mean, hypothetically, for years, for like 10 years. So it cut time off of my final time. So I, my 20 and back was done in 2000. Like I was only out there like 18 years of our calendar date, even though the total time I spent was 20 years. There was a hard cap. There was something they said that, if you're some, you know, genetically, if you did more than 20 years, when they put you back, there was a high chance of you, a high probability of you being mentally disabled, you know, of a crazy going, going insane from it. So they capped it at 20 years for, you know, my genetics. But I, so I did 20 years, but it was, I was really in our timeline there from uh, 82 to about 2000, 99 or 2000 it was right around there. And I know this because I woke up one day and I felt like a completely different person. And I said to myself, well, I stood up the morning, first thing in the morning, like 7 a.m., I sat up in bed and I went, it's over. I kept saying, it's over, it's over. And that was like at the end of 99, summer of 99, I think. And so that's why, I'm pretty sure that's why that happened, because those missions stretched the, my 20 years out. Like I experienced 20 years, but in 99, basically, they put me back. They worked. They they worked all that out. Um, oh, wow. So you got to think from '99. That was the last time that I knew. That was what we were doing in '99 up there. So that was you know 19 years ago. So it's been almost 20 years since. So I can imagine that quite a bit's happened in that time. There's been quite a bit of advancement for them. They were building on Ceres Colony like crazy. There was major construction going everywhere all the time. You would get off the train and look one way, and it was under construction. They were building a giant thing, and you'd look the other way, and they would be sculpting a giant statue in the wall. And then you'd go down. You know, there were there were entire small cities in caverns being built, and that was going heavily. So twenty that was twenty years ago. I'm sure it's expanded greatly since then. Yeah, I mean that's a whole um, slavery sentence right there. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Again. Well, and you know, another thing is when I first got there, the very first day I got there, I looked up the 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 hangar area that I was in was old. It was made out of steel and it was rusty and it was old, like it was antiquated. So it, they had been there for quite some time in 80, uh, you know, 89, it was about 90, I think, that I ended up there, 90. I had to look them. I wrote it down somewhere else. I had to look through my timeline, but... You know, so the end of the 80s and the early 90s when I got there, the Ceres Colony Corporation was already an old place. It had been there for a long time, 50-plus years at least, worth of age on the buildings. Wow. Wow. Well, Tony, listen, uh, I, want, I want to start winding this down here for this uh, interview. Uh, I want to ask you, though, kind of bring it all the way full circle around how does your family now um, 
react to your story and experiences, your your children, if you've even told them, uh, your spouse, parents? I mean, what what what's been people's reactions to you sharing this? I mean, I can imagine they at first probably thought, dude, you're crazy, you know? Well, I thought I was crazy. And what I did was I went to everybody and said, ask me questions, please prove me wrong. And what happened was I ended up convincing everybody else, you know, um, my whole family doesn't know as far as I know. Um, what I found, the other thing I found was by telling people that had no idea about any of it and giving them the knowledge wasn't very, uh, considerate thing to do. So as a result, I only talk to people that ask me about it. There are people that know about it that don't ask me anything. I think they'd rather not know, you know, they'd, they're they're too busy worrying about having a better house and a better car sure. and and so i it's not fair for me to force it it's not fair for me to force my experiences on somebody that's going to require them to unbelieve something that they believe it's not it's just not fair so i don't so if anybody asks me i i've i talk to whoever um i told my kids and sometimes they have questions and they talk to me about things. You know, I, my kid, I got my kids into the law of one and um, told them about everything I, everything I could, you know, just to be honest with them. I feel I didn't want to set them up for failure in case it happened to them. Uh, I've told some other people, but again, anybody that doesn't ask me. So nobody asks me really in my day-to-day life about it. And so I don't talk about it much. I go for weeks at a time and don't really talk about it with people um, you know, that I live nearby. Right. Uh, I, I like talking about it. It's really good therapy. But again, in order to believe what I'm telling you, what I've said today with you, in order to believe any of it, you have to, un- to somebody that doesn't know, they have to unbelieve something. And that's a big thing to ask of a stranger or any, or a loved one, you know? So I don't really go around. I'm not really on a mission to tell people this stuff. I'm kind of putting this in for history's sake. You know, I think someday in the future, after they disclose, uh, might some maybe something that I say might be worth something. To some, you know, as a historical account. So it's my hope that that's the case. You know, but that's really a, getting it off my chest has uh, been reward enough. Yeah, and I, I imagine, like like I've said to you, I've probably numerous times tonight. I think that is probably one of the biggest things that people get out of my show as far as coming on i know you know i can i contacted you but a lot of people that come on when they get to share their experiences it it really does help them uh get it off their chest and move on um you know i want to bring you back on uh for a patrons episode where uh patrons can actually uh come on the line and uh, ask you questions and things like that because I sh- I'm sure that the patrons are going to want to talk to you. And, I would love that. Uh, I-, I think it'd be fun, a- and I and I like doing those kind of shows for the patrons. Uh, but you mentioned earlier to me, I'm not sure if it was during the interview or before the interview, that uh, you're kicking around the idea of a book and things like that. Uh, I want to just give you an open invitation if you do pursue the book and that goes through for you. Whenever that happens, uh, you're more than welcome to come on the show and talk about the book and stuff and uh, drum awesome. up interest because uh, I, I definitely think people would really enjoy having that. So I highly encourage you to pursue something like that. Yeah, I'd like to get the book out of the way just so I could give all the gory details down and um, 
quit talking about it from the beginning to the end. So yeah. all the time, you know? <laughs> and uh, once once there's a, a book written down of it, I can kind of like get back to my life kind of thing. You know, I, I don't know if it's going to be some kind of income thing. I don't expect it to be, but um, it'll be. And a lot, of, and frankly, a lot of people ask for it. There's a lot of, you know, it's when you Google my name, there's book is the third one I think that pops up. Uh, Tony Rodriguez book. So a lot of people are interested in it. I think it's just going to be one of those things. To, it'll be the final telling of the story, but it's it's hard. It's been hard for me to write it. I, I'm not. I'm, an, sure. I'm no author. Yeah, no, and that's that's probably some of the hardest things that people face is when it comes to the idea of doing a book is, you know, are you a writer? Not everybody's a writer. I'm not a writer. My wife's a writer. She used to do it professionally, like, but I'm not the writer, you know? Like, it, like <laughs> And so, I mean, you can tell the story, but when it comes to actually putting it down on paper, it, it takes time, especially if it's not your forte. Uh, so, yeah, I, but Tony, man, I appreciate you talking with me tonight and stuff, and I think... Uh, we're giving the people one hell of an interview, so it's been a good one. Yeah, it sure has. It sure feels good to do it, and I'm happy to anybody out there. I know there's going to be a lot of questions. I'll keep an eye uh, where I can. You know, there's always a lot of questions of things we might not have covered. I've, I've done uh, one other sh- one other show where people called in and did the questions, and it went well, great, and I really enjoyed it. And I would love to do that again if if that opportunity awesome. rises. Yeah, we'll definitely work it out and stuff in the future. Uh, so that said, I really appreciate you coming on, man. So uh, take care. Until next time. You got it. Thanks. Uh, take care, everybody. Well, that's the show, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, there are three things you can do to help support the show. One, go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. Two, go to patreon.com forward slash the confessionals. That's patreon.com forward slash the confessionals and sign up to become a patron to help support the show. And three, you can go ahead and share the link to the show that you're listening to right now around social media. That will help expose the show to an audience that didn't know about the show beforehand. And until next week, friends, stay safe, take care, and remember, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Bye. Oh, it's good to be a truck driver. Yeah, baby. America. I put the team on my back. I do it all for the family. Everyone that they can rap. Nobody ever gonna challenge me. Starting my week on a Sunday. And then they can make it a one day. I just been ready to take off. Waiting my turn on the runway. Never be turning around. Never be turning around. Hey, never be slowing it down. Never be slowing it down. Hey, I keep my foot on the gas. Sunday, and then they can make it in one day. I just been ready.
ready to take off. Wait in my turn on the runway. Never be turning around, never be turning around. Ayy, never be slowing it down, never be slowing it down. Ayy, I keep my foot on the gas, I keep my foot on the gas. Ayy, I know I'm never gonna crash, I know I'm never gonna crash. Ayy, never be turning around, never be turning around. Ayy, never be slowing it down, never be slowing it down. Ayy, I keep my foot on the gas, I keep my foot on the gas. Ayy, I know I'm never gonna crash. Doing this for the money, so don't misinterpret my last line. The weather ain't always been sunny, but I know that I'm gonna still shine. You never gonna make it till you got the power to go and develop a strong mind. Cause everything happens where you don't expect it. The journey ain't given a deadline. I'm going till I got a flat line, connecting with people like landline. I've been blowing up like a landmine. I put myself on like a combine. Knowing the way that they go, and I'm ready for more. I don't wait on the sideline. I'm feeling like 2011 when Drizzy was dropping them hits like his headlines. I don't understand what I can't do. If I cut you off, then I had to. I'm staying up late like it's fast food. The life of a rapper who in school. I don't wanna hear all the people who've been trying to give me advice. If you haven't done it before, they don't give you your opinion about what you think I should go do with my life. Hey, I put the team on my back. I do it all for the family. Everyone that they can rap. Nobody ever gon' challenge me. Starting my week on a Sunday. They think they can make it in one day. I just been ready to take off. Waiting my turn on the wrong way. Never be turning around. Never be turning around. Ayy. Never be slowing it down. Never be slowing it down. Ayy. I keep my foot on the gas. I keep my foot on the gas. Ayy. I know I'm never gon' crash. I know I'm never gon' crash. Ayy. Never be turning around. Never be turning around. Ayy. Never be slowing it down. Never be slowing it down.